You are listening to a piece of the Salasin.10 podcast area. You are listening to a piece of the Salasin.10 podcast area.
e-commerce has completely changed the speed of innovation. From hosting websites, compute engines, to data prediction, it offers the flexibility that companies need now. It's what makes cloud and new cloud platform very, very important to our businesses. I grew up just absolutely loving visual effects. When we started Atomic Fiction, one of the most challenging parts of doing visual effects is rendering. It takes an immense amount of computing horsepower. Using Google Cloud Platform, we have massive infrastructure off-site when we need it, and then nothing when we don't. It helped us put the resources on the artists and making sure that every penny that our clients spent made it up on the movie screen. Khan Academy's mission is a free world-class education for anyone anywhere. Google Cloud Platform allows us to stay focused on learner outcomes because our infrastructure has become this invisible layer that we don't have to worry about anymore. Keeping track of that much data for millions of students every day is a challenging problem, and storing all that data and being able to quickly act on it and look at it is really core to our mission. The name Pocket Gems really speaks to what we do, which is make beautiful things mm -hmm. for your mobile device. For War Dragons, in minutes or hours, you might have hundreds of thousands of players playing your game. If you don't have the server infrastructure, your server is just, just going to explode. Google Cloud Platform allows us to be able to scale automatically. We don't even have to think about that. Your backend just works. It's almost magical. Payments are the connective tissue of economies. And that really resonates with Nomad Anywhere. We are providing payments in the massive underserved markets. Posting our application on Google Cloud Platform gives us a much higher reliability than we could have got posting it ourselves. We're really able to move the needle and make those payments available and affordable everywhere. The mission of Spotify is really about being a great musical companion and making it more personal. Moving to Google's Cloud Platform enabled us to take use of the skill that Google can provide. The reality is it's quite hard to build great data centers, and that was really the driver into Google's Cloud Platform. The less time that we can spend solving problems that are already solved, the more time and energy we can spend on turning our data into value. We wanted to make this marketing campaign for Coca-Cola something that every single person could participate. Submit your photo, you can be on the flag in the opening of the World Cup. It was a gigantic scale. We did not have time to set up an infrastructure and set up the servers. By using Google Cloud Platform, we went straight into building on top of it. Fundamentally, it's down to one word, it's trust. The same infrastructure that powers the Google search engines is what's powering the cloud that Coca-Cola is running on. to do a little more introduction of myself, it would be great if I could know about you a little bit more. So, I know there has been some surveys that went around uh, before this event registration, but if you have your phone, if you could just scan this QR code, or just access this URL and submit the form, it would be really helpful so that I can know what you're interested in, what your background might be, uh, how much you've been experienced, Google Cloud, and I've also added a field for that last-minute uh, request 
for the content for today. So I'll have a quick look at the survey and uh, try to, you know, be as flexible as possible to uh, adapt to your request. So while everyone is filling out the survey, uh, let me introduce myself a little bit. Uh, I am a sales engineer. Uh, sales engineer is like a very unique role. It's like half sales, half engineer. So I'm the tech person for the sales team, and I'm the sales person for the tech team. So it's flexing two roles at the same time. Actually, I've been doing this uh, for my whole professional career. I, uh, I worked for like 10 years for software pre-sales, a sales engineer role in one company, and five years ago, I joined Google. And uh, when I started in Google, I was more on Google Apps. So how many of you use Gmail? Thank you. Uh, many people use Gmail, but uh, Google Apps was about uh, bringing that power of collaboration into organizations. And I started as a sales engineer in Google Apps. Eventually, I moved into the Google Geo team, which is Google Maps, Google Earth, again for larger organizations to adopt the Google technology that we've been releasing to consumers into organizations for the business applications, for the internal systems. And uh, a couple of years back, I was leading a Japan in a team in Japan, and uh, I started to think about what's next, and I really wanted to invest more myself more in the platform, and as about that platform was emerging, uh, I started to dedicate myself totally into this new platform. So now I am 100% uh, dedicating my time for the Google Cloud Platform, and this event, the Google Cloud Platform GCP Next event, was the first time we had a pure Google platform event. And this was held in San Francisco, and we want to expand the message from there to the audience worldwide. Uh, I find it also interesting because uh, in the past I've been doing a lot of things. Uh, I started at, uh, at university when I was studying doing image processing. I was doing like aerial image processing to detect changes between aerial images taken from the same place, but in different years. Uh, it was difficult because, you know, uh, the aerial, the, you know, the equipment can be very different models, different lenses. It's hard to know how you can pre-process one photo to match the other. And uh, in those days, I was using neural networks to do that kind of image uh, my master course, uh, again, I was using neural networks, but now for uh, content classification, I was like creating a search engine for like, educational content so that I can pick a website and say this can be used for this topic of which grade. So that kind of mapping was done again using uh, natural language processing and neural networks. In the first software that I was uh, working on was like uh, machine translation or voice recognition or text-to-speech. And then I eventually moved into more of enterprise software. But using the Google Cloud Platform, it's interesting because all these things that I've been doing are now coming into one piece. Because uh, machine learning, uh, voice translation, all, the, all these things uh, have now become a core part 
or the Google service that we offer. Okay, has everyone filled the form? You don't have to, but uh, it would be helpful if you could. Let me have a quick look at some of the responses. Um, okay, so how about the GCP next event itself? Let me make it a little bigger. Yes, so some have really attended the event. I envy you. And, uh, okay. The live stream, not really, well, it wasn't really time friendly, so that I understand. Uh, some have already looked at the content. Okay, and for some it was totally something you don't And I see that there's more developers here, researchers, data scientists, okay. And your experience with GCP seems to be really varying quite a bit. <coughs> Machine learning, okay, this is interesting. Uh, we had this GCP extended event in Singapore last year, and at that point it was like, uh, Mostly no one really had experience, and it was like lots of zeros on throwing. Now it's, okay. What do you subscribe? Okay, so one source of information that many people don't know is that we now have a podcast for Google Cloud Platform. So if you didn't know that, you can subscribe to that on your phone, you can uh, listen to that on your commute. Please do use that. Requests, Kubernetes, uh, uh, technical explanations, okay. Uh, imagery. Okay, so thank you for the request. I wouldn't say I can cover them all in the session, but let me do my best. Okay, so those who don't know about the event, uh, this was a two-day event. The main event was a two-day event that was held in San Francisco. Uh, the website is still up there. Uh, if you go to the agenda, you'll see that there was a keynote for the day, and there was like three tracks during the, uh, the two days. And the breakout sessions uh, were one was like application development, of course it's a big topic. Another big topic was infrastructure, virtual machines, networking, uh, containers, how you can you know, migrate your current existing workers to the cloud. Uh, those were another topic. And data and analytics. Google itself is, uh, has a lot of data center, but what we do is really crunch the data to make meaningful insights out of it, to enhance the project, give you the insights, and all of that is done by the technologies that, are, that we have really invented or the technologies that we have taken from the open source and put it into our infrastructure. So there were a lot of uh, sessions about data and analytics and we'll be touching a little bit more about those. Uh, there was also another uh, category which was called solutions showcases where we had a deep dive into some of the real customers' use cases. Some were more about uh, financial time series data analysis. Uh, some might be about uh, a big data processing for, uh, for, for it. Well, there, there was many customers coming on board, along with our product teams, to really talk about their experience, what the architecture was. 
And uh, I think it was a great session that we had here. For the two keynotes, if you look at the speakers, uh, day one was uh, the keynote of day, uh, day one. Uh, there was a lot of speakers, but it started from uh, Sundar Pichai. Uh, he's the CEO of Google. And Google has transformed from just Google to become a more outlet company. Uh, the two founders are now on the outlet level. Google is uh, run by Sundar. Uh, although he doesn't show in the web page, maybe it was like last minute change. Uh, he was there. Diane Green, the new uh, head that is leading all this cloud and apps business, was there. Uh, it was also to show our commitment to the enterprise. Uh, of course, we are uh, providing a platform for startups, ventures, but we are getting more into larger organizations, and uh, we are changing our structure of our organizations, how to well adapt to that market as well. And of course, the, the father of our data centers, us, was there. He is the one that owns our technical infrastructure team, and Jeff uh, team. Who has heard, of, heard about Jeftine? Is he a known person here? If you heard, have heard about the Google technologies that we have invented, because there was no other technology out there that you could use, you might have heard about like Big Table, DFF, right? all these, uh, or MapReduce. All these things, I would say he's involved. You give him an idea, you give him a code, he'll make it scale. And he's a great person. And what he's recently been working on is a project called Google Brain. Google Brain is a project that is about uh, a common infrastructure inside Google so that we can easily adopt the best practices of machine learning, especially deep learning. And he's leading that, and he can talk about that as well. Going back to my slides, uh, one of my favorite sessions uh, was the keynote from Eric Schmidt. It's, it's rare to have him on a conference, uh, and I think uh, all the attendees were delighted to have him. But uh, it was the insightful talk that he gave us about, uh, you know, he has been in this industry for a while. Actually, he's been leading this. Uh, and, you know, he talks about the emergence of all these technologies and why now is the right time to get started with the cloud. And he talks it in a way that everything you do today, if you are, for example, an application developer, you might not really want to be hands-on on managing your networks, operating systems, virtual machines, patching them, keeping them up to date. You know? What you want is a more abstracted layer where you can concentrate on your code, deploy it, make sure it runs, release it to people, make sure it doesn't go down. And there's been this abstraction that everyone has been working on. And you know, the early doctors have been uh, taking uh, these technologies like App Engine from the early days, but we're also having like containers and all these stuff that you know enables workloads that haven't been able to get that abstraction also to move to the cloud. 
also live nicely together with a hybrid model. And with this all coming in, he says now is the right time. I highly recommend going through this video. And the other nice thing about his session is that he's a chairman, right? But he gives like 10 things to do, a to-do list, 10 things to start with at the end of the session. And the 10 things are like nothing that a normal chairman would do. Right? Start with a modern programming language like Go, or like use App Engine or containers. Uh, if you want to choose operating system, use Linux. Uh, use gRPC, start with machine learning, don't take it lightly. And all these things that were given from him as what are the, some of the things that you might want to invest more of your time in. So, whenever you have time, please have a look at it. The great thing is that all this content is now on YouTube. And if you go to the Google Cloud Platform channel, all of the sessions are recorded and there for you. In this session, uh, instead of just replicating some of the sessions, uh, with the limited time, I didn't think that's really possible to cover everything. So I've decided to focus a little bit more on one theme that has been more and more highlighted, and I get a lot more, you know, inquiries of you know, how I can use this as part of my service, as part of my strategy. And that is uh, machine learning. So in this session, I'll be talking a little bit about uh, how we're using machine learning, what's out there, uh, what kind of offerings that we provide today, and how you can approach your strategy for machine learning, and also how you can get started. Is that okay? Would it be a topic of interest? Yes, sir. Okay, thank you. So, uh, in GCP Next, machine learning was mainly talked in these sessions. Uh, the keynote by Eric and Jeff Dean, again, talked about the Google Brain. And there was following two sessions that really dived into uh, how to implement or how what the actual use case would be. So I'll be talking about these. And first of all, I'd like to share with you this talk from Eric on machine learning, because it really resonated with This cloud platform we're building will abstract out all of those examples like Choke. And what it will do is it will give you a platform that you can really express. And it's timed, and the reason it's so important to me is that it's timed perfectly for what's going to happen next. And you're going to hear a little bit about this uh, in a minute from a couple of other people. This platform is not the end, it's the bottom. And there's something above it. And the thing that is above it is machine learning, both uh, narrow AI, as it's called, as well as general AI. And this is the next transformation. I've decided to spend as much time as I can on it because I think it's so profound. And it changes, I'm, I'm basically a programmer who sort of got lucky, if you will, in Google. Uh, sorry. And the, uh, the, the programming paradigm changes. Instead of programming a computer, you teach a computer to learn something, and it does what you want. It's a fundamental change in programming. 
And uh, we've just taken the initial steps. We, um, the neatest examples that most people can understand about machine learning are involving vision. So we built a library called Vision ML, which we have announced, which will be demoed today. Vision ML does the classification of photos, right? It's great fun. And if you get confused over why this is so important, you use Google Photos. Spend a little bit of time playing with Google Photos. It's not the fact that it uploads it to the cloud. It's not the fact that it does face recognition, all of which used to be amazing. It's the fact that it then classifies all your photos into what you're doing in them, and how it does that is beyond me, right? I literally still don't understand. But perhaps the greatest example is what happened in Korea a week ago with AlphaGo. AlphaGo, uh, as, as most of you probably Go is the hardest uh, game known, incomputable in its traditional incomputable. And the team invented neural networks, of which there are two, a value network and a policy network, that could be used to learn how to play the game. So the most interesting thing about AlphaGo was not that they were brilliant Pro, brilliant people and brilliant programmers, but that they had to design as part of their software learning algorithms that were tailored to the way the game actually worked. And that's the next layer. It's the layer above. And 20 years from now, people will say, remember the choke. And then they'll say, yeah, yeah, and in 2016, yeah, yeah, we had all those VMs and all that other stuff. We don't think about that anymore. But Somebody took care of it, and now all we're doing is doing various forms of learning, cognition, and modification, improving your code. So, so how do I translate this today? So I figured I would offer sort of, an, and put this in perspective and finish up by saying, I think there's 10 things that you all can do right now. Obviously, thank you all. Well, from here, but uh, you heard it, right? What you do today is important. <coughs> Especially, well, you are, many of you are developers. Many of you might not be thinking about migration and more concentrating on development already. But still, many of you, I think, are concentrating on the infrastructure, getting things right. That's important. But Eric started with what's next. You know? What you're doing today is still the beginning. And what next is after you have the infrastructure run applications, collect the data, store it, process it, what are you going to do with it? And uh, the fundamental difference between what the typical data processing used to be and how it has changed with machine learning is moving from just rule-based, saying, okay, I find something that looks like a face because I know faces are structured this way. And then, so this is probably the eye, this is a probably the left edge of the right eye. You, know, you can do that. But that's more rule-based on turning your knowledge into algorithms. But moving from there to say, okay, I know this is a photo of an image, a photo of a face. These are faces, these are faces, these are faces. You throw tons of tons of data into a model and let them learn. And now you have a model where you can input new data and get the outcome. So you know, this paradigm shift it's something that you have to learn, and you have to keep in mind that it's something different. And, uh, and it is actually what's next. So again, this one is highly recommended. Please go look at uh, Eric's uh, session if you have time. And then uh, Jeff Dean. 
So Jifty being the father of all these technologies that we run at scale is now running the Google Brain project. And one of his slides shows how in Google we are really adopting this technology more and more and more. And you see this acceleration, right? And uh, some, are, some are probably obvious, like the AlphaGo, it was obviously using machine learning or deep learning. Uh, some things in apps. How many of you use Inbox on the mobile? For those who don't know, there's a Gmail client and there's an Inbox client. Yeah. Inbox. So, and one of the features is auto reply, or it will give you like three buttons at the end of the email and showing is this the reply that you want to send to? That kind of application is using uh, deep learning. The Google uh, Photos is another obvious one. Speech, uh, speech recognition, translate. Uh, there's a lot more actually. Uh, we Google, when we run our, uh, operations on a data center, we use machine learning. So there's a research paper out there if you're interested. But if there's data, and if there's so many parameters that you don't know what the rule is, you let the machine learn, right? And then you get some insights, and then you get some ways to notice what you might want to change to get a better outcome. And we run our data centers with machine learning so that we can be highly optimal and become more of a meeting data center operator. Okay, so when it comes to machine learning, there's two types of offerings that we have. And this is uh, one of the categories. This is something that you can just easily start with. Just API. I would say these are machine learning powered APIs. Okay. So one of the APIs that has been there for long is Translate. The Translate is simple, right? You give a text in one language, say it's in English, and say you want it in some other language, in Chinese or in Japanese. It's text in, text out. You don't really have to know about machine learning. But under the hood, in the data center, it's using machine learning. So this is different. Machine, using machine learning, for some of you, you might be going into really building the model. But for some of you, you don't really need it. All you want to do is just use it. And these APIs are the APIs that you can get started with. So Translate, uh, I think many of you can just easily uh, know what it is. Uh, if you use Google Translate, this is the backend that we're exposing that is also powering Google Translate. Okay. I'll just skip the middle in for now. Google Vision API, uh, there's a hands-on session uh, this afternoon for this one, so that if you are interested in how to get it run, uh, just go there. Uh, I can give you a quick demo also, but Vision API is an API that is powering services like Google Photos. You give it an image, and as a result, you get uh, what's in the image. How many faces are there? Is that person happy? Which location or which landmark is this representing? Okay. You don't have to need to know about machine learning, but you can use it. More details are coming. And another one is predictions API. For some of you, you know you have data. You've been collecting data. It can be logs, it can be some 
these are surveys, it can be anything. You want to make something out of it. You want to use it to predict something. You want to use it to classify new data coming in. Well, you don't know data science. You don't know machine learning. What would you do? Prediction API. So this is an API for application developers that know nothing about data science for you to dump in the data and let Google figure out what model to adapt to that data. And then your data turns into an API wrapping a model that is generated in the cloud. So if you have data, you want to do something, don't know how, this is where to go. Until you learn how to do things more uh, at a sophisticated level. Uh, this is uh, actually more of what the machine, uh, the vision API can do. It is just GA, so it's no longer beta, it's no longer alpha. You can use it, you can pay for it as well, uh, so that you can use it for large scale. But if you have a collection of photos that you want to make out of, that make out some meaning, not just the tags in the photos, right? The cameras will give you that long, or sometimes give you more image properties about the photo. But if you have a lot of data, human can get more out of it. Why? Because human can tell what's in the photo. It's hard to code a program to do that. But by using this, you can do that. We also announced a new feature in this category, which is called tweeting. I ask this question, and I always get a different response depending on the profile of the audience. But how many of you search Google using your voice? Great. I mean, in general, uh, the higher generation will say, I haven't done it before. The younger it is, it's more natural. <laughs> My kids will just use voice all the time. Right? But uh, so the voice, the, tech, uh, the voice recognition has been there as part of the Google services for long. It's been using it in the Android. There's a web speech API that also hits the same backend. But now we have decided to expose this as well as another API. So imagine having a lot of recordings. Right? You want to transcribe that recording into text. Now what you can do, you can search through recordings, right? If you have used uh, YouTube and know what it does, you get an idea of what this API can bring. So turning audio into text that, uh, is what this uh, API does. And what Jeff followed with that was TensorFlow. So those of you who have uh, mentioned that you have experience in machine learning or data science are probably those who have been coding in Python or using tools like R. It's not Excel, right? It's, uh, if you really want to do it at scale, uh, it's not like in a spreadsheet. It's more in these machine learning libraries. Uh, we didn't actually adopt things like scikit-learn and these libraries. We came up with our own. And the reason is, creating a library probably is not too hard. But when you want to really have something that can scale, it is hard. So uh, TensorFlow is an open source SDK that comes from the Google Brain team. So you saw the acceleration of Google's adoption of machine learning. 
why that could happen was in Google, we provided an SDK to each of our product teams so that they could easily code in a way that they could adopt a machine learning. And that SDK is the core of what is now called TensorFlow SDK. Okay. So, I don't know if many of you know the understand the notion of tensor. Let's say it's a, a vector matrix. But uh, all the calculation can be expressed as a flow of these tensor. And this tensor <coughs> SDK eases writing those kind of algorithms. It being an open source project, there's lots of interesting things that have happened. It's not only Google using it, a lot of developers have used it. Oh, this is one of the examples, but uh, if you go to GitHub, there's like already hundreds of projects that are using TensorFlow. It's really, really amazing to see what effect it's called. Google usually, or in the past, wasn't really that much open source company. Right? We might be adopting it, but we weren't contributing that much or taking out our core information as open source. But we're doing this, we're shifting gears a little bit, but doing this, we're seeing lots of adoption. And this is not by Google, but from the, one of those projects that they built a model that learns the painter's you know, the way, of the, way they stroke, choose the colors. Now they have that model, they can inject the new data and get an output. So the new data, in this case, is this photo. And by copying the way that painter paints, came out that photo. Okay. So I think it's, uh, there's a new category of like machine-generated art, machine-generated poems, machine-generated whatever. But uh, it's interesting to see that. And uh, yeah, please try it out. It's, it's open source, it's on GitHub. Uh, Google did something similar with called uh, with Deep, uh, Deep Dreams. I, I wouldn't show it up because uh, when you search for it, there's uh, lots of images that are, may not be appropriate here. So uh, I wouldn't bring it up, but uh, Deep Dream is uh, is a result of a machine learning model trying to make sense of an image. Right? And say, okay, I think this can be looking like an eye of a dog. Okay. Then you uh, tweak the images a little bit like a dog and go through the same process again and again and again. And then as a result, the original image is going to morph into like a really, uh, a collection of uh, birds and Dogs and please search for it. Uh, it's, uh, it's easier to see than explain. So TensorFlow is great. Now it's open source. You can use it anywhere. But nothing stopped there. We announced the Google Machine Learning, Google Cloud Machine Learning. And what this does is take what you have built and give a runtime on Google. So machine learning, for those who know, what's the most expensive part? It's probably the learning process. Okay. The learning process is, once you design a model, you feed in the training data, you get the output of the training data, and you see that it's not, it's not the 
expanded out from, and then you start adjusting the parameters in this network, and you go over the loop over and over again, so that the input will be producing a good output. And when that output, and when the difference is, or difference, or the evaluation result is low enough, you consider this network, you know, well trained, ready to go. And this training process is really hard to do at scale. If you have terabytes of data and you want to run it, if you can wait for months, fine. But it's really hard to do that large amount of processing in your machine, in your data center. You can do it, but then you have to think about how I can maintain the infrastructure to run that train. So Google Cloud Machine Learning is a runtime in Google that we maintain, we power with like GPUs and all these things so that we can get a boost of this training process. And once the training is done, you can take out the model or take out the parameters that are tuned and you can run it elsewhere. Okay? So using the machine learning model is not the heavy part. The training is the heavy part. And this especially helps with the training. You can use it as uh, actual using part as well. But the uplift of the training process is going to be the key things. Uh, Jim also talked about how faster it can be. And this is a chart, I know it's a little bit too slow. But it's like, the blue line here is what it takes if you did the training on your own machine. And the orange line is what it can be when you run it in the Google Cloud Machine Learning. It's like a 20x acceleration. Okay. Think about what you can do with this fast machine learning process. You can have like a daily model, you know, update, whether or which is not possible if you just try to do it on your own infrastructure. Okay, so that was from the keynote and. One other session I'm going to introduce a little bit was uh, from Julia, who is one of our developer advocates. And uh, she also took this session with uh, a person from Wix, and he's the, he was adopting the vision of So how many of you have asked this question to yourself? <laughs> you look at something and say, can I have this? So that was Julia's question. And, uh, the challenge was, can I implement a model that helps you detect if something safe to hide or not? So, you know, on the left side you see a fluffy, what is this? Is this a rabbit or? And uh, on the right side you see the glass. You know, it's obvious for humans which is safe, which is not. So, again, the details. This session is not enough to go into too much of detail. The recording is all there on YouTube. But just to give you an idea, she had a collection of photos that she labeled. Labeled means, okay, this is uh, a broken glass, this is unsafe. <coughs> this is a doll, this is safe. This is a pillow, this is safe. She had a collection of these data that she used to try uh, to train her model. The model was written in TensorFlow, gave the input, over the iteration of training, and then you get a model. Once you get a model, you can give it new data and see the outcome. 
So the interesting thing is that this is the left one. Okay. Uh, she gave a new data of an octopus. Is this huggable or not? I would say not huggable. Some people may say it can be hugged. But uh, yeah, the model returned not huggable. On the right side, it, that's an octopus too. But that, uh, that was returned as safe to hug. Uh, I mean, even in her work, it was a different implementation of the same thing. This is a technical word, I think. But uh, it's interesting that once you have a model that has learned, you can detect from like the surface, the texture, what materials it's made for, even if it can be having some similar structures, what is hoverable and what is not. So whether this hoverable or not engine is going to be useful for you, for you, I don't know. But it's just to get an idea of what you can implement when you have data. Wix, uh, this is interesting because for, this is for the other side of the audience, which is Wix is a, everyone knows Wix, or have you used it? No, it's, uh, it's a website that, give, uh, that uh, allows you to easily create intuitive websites. Right? So there's lots of widgets and all these things that you can choose from and make your own website. <laughs> they have tons of products. And what they wanted to do was know what the user is trying to do, help the users more and more, so that it's easy, the user experience is much better. You can get to the website that you want in shorter time. You can get to the right content. But they didn't want to ask too many questions to the end user. So what they did was like, they have a big collection of data. And uh, they used the Vision API to extract more meta information. So then they tag that, they recorded that tag into the system so that not only from the attribution that the user has added to it, but they also use the information that was result uh, returned from, from the vision API to you know, group content together. So if you search for San Francisco, for example, you can search for Vision API can detect major landmarks in a photo, for example. So those things that are really hard to do without knowing machine learning, but because of these APIs, you can really just do it if you can write code. Okay. So this is a great example where an application developer not knowing anything about machine learning can still use machine learning. And uh, many port if you have a portal, if you let users upload content, these vision and speech and uh, will help you get more information out of these bytes. That user that human can do, but it's hard to do with it. Okay, uh, next I want to move a little bit into okay, what can I do if you really want to get into the machine learning? Again, it's really a spectrum of services. It's not a single answer that is for everyone. First, you need to know which side of the machine learning offering that is going to be for me. For me, may or may not mean for now, maybe for the future. But on one side, again, we have APIs that anyone can just use. If you can write code, if you can make a REST API call, you can use it. 
the other side is I stated as academic or researchers or data scientists, but if you really know what you want to do, if you know the algorithm, if you know uh, what model or what kind of uh, research papers that you want to bring into implementation, that's the other side of the uh, So then you want to go into TensorFlow. Okay. So let me give you a little bit of an introduction on what how you can use the first category. Right? So translate, vision, speech, out of these, I'll just quickly go to some of the vision uh, examples. You can have a code lab, so you can try it yourself. But this is a Python code. This is actually an example, a modified version of the example provided in the Vision API uh, documentation page. But uh, it's, it's simple. Uh, what you do is, there's two ways to do it. One is embed your image into your request. And the request could be something like this. What I'm doing here is, okay, I'm creating the, the JSON object that I'm going to send as a request, and as part of it, I have the image. And the content is going to be a base64 encoded image. So the larger the file, it's going to be big, but all you do is just send it out. And at the same time, you're going to say, okay, what's the kind of image processing or image uh, content extraction that you want. And you can choose from different uh, different types. And you can also make multiple types in a single call. So label detection is detecting what's in the, uh, in the photo. So if I take a photo here and run it, it'll probably say like auditorium or conference, you know, people. Face detection, uh, this is like how many faces, or where is the face in this photo? Uh, can anyone tell me what's the difference of uh, face detection and face recognition? Mm. When you detect the face, you just not like, that's a face. But recognition, like when you show this exact person, like who the person is. Yes. So it's uh, what we provide here is face detection. So we'll tell you where in the photo, where in the standing block uh, face is. We even get you more granular input, like where the eyes is, where the nose is. You obviously, uh, I'll give you an example at the moment. But we don't do face recognition. We don't map that person's face to an identifiable profile. Okay. For security reasons, we don't want to do that. So. Uh, that's something important to know. If you want to do something more, you might have to implement something yourself. Uh, text detection is OCR. So if you have an image or my t-shirt says Google Cloud Platform, you give a photo to this API, it will return this text. Of course, you know, it can't be perfect. You know, If you look at the logos of all your t-shirts, I mean, some are really hard even for humans. So don't expect this to be perfect, but it, it's important that you test it yourself, see the quality, and find out if that's a level, an accuracy level, 
that makes sense for your use case. Uh, logo detection. So famous brands like Starbucks, McDonald's. If you give it a logo, it can detect the logo. <coughs> and uh, landmark is like Eiffel Tower. You know. Again, this is not a complete database of the world, but we try to do our best for to detect like major landmarks that are out there. So it's not just about uh, returning Eiffel Tower as Eiffel Tower. It could also return the landmark. Because in Google, we have the geodatabase and say, okay, this landmark is positioned here. Why not return the location of that too? So I've seen examples where you can't really rely on the exit metadata a camera gives you, but you can use this API to embed more information into photo. Okay. Uh, safe search is another example uh, that is uh, really hard to implement yourself. If you own a website, and if you're hosting content and serving it to users, you don't want unappropriate content to be there. There needs to be a better way to filter that out. I mean, Google, you know, you don't see those not really good images in Google's sites. We filter that out, right? In YouTube, we try our best to filter out inappropriate content. So that algorithm is also being hidden behind this API so that it can return results like, this is likely to be inappropriate. We give you a score, so you, you can set your own bar, how safe, how completely safe it wanted to be. If it's uh, content for children, you might, you might want to set the bar higher, or you might be okay to set it lower, okay? And image properties is more about uh, predominant <laughs> uh, colors and stuff. So this is an uh, image that I have for, okay, this is a profile image that I have on some of my social network. And this is the result uh, that, that came back. I have a, I think I have a better way to show this to you. Yeah. So by using uh, the Vision API's face detection, it will give you a bounding box of where the face is, the central and the outer bounding box. So I, this is an example by combining this API with OpenCV to manipulate the image and draw bounding box on top of the image. But if you look at the face, you'll see more red dots. I, I'm not a perfect fan of newest design, so there's probably a better way to do that. But you can see that it detects where the eyes start and stop, right? where the nose is, where the eyebrow is. All this information will be returned to you as part of the adjacent object. Okay? What you do with this is up to you. So if you are to implement a makeup application, now you know where the ears are, where the eyes are, you can add some color effects on top of the photo, for example. Uh, this is another uh, photo that I used, which is, this is spherical, there's 360 cameras these days, image, but uh, I want you to try if it works fine with like uh, many people. Sorry, the resolution is not really good, but uh, for every people, oops, you can see that 
multiple people, multiple results are going to be returned. You can say how many people are there, but you can go beyond that. Right? And it also returns information like how happy you are. You know, this guy is obviously happy. It's, uh, it's easy as a human to know that. But the good thing is that now you can use it as part of your implementation. You don't have to know what a happy face looks like. It will just return you, this person is likely to be happy. Okay? Uh, okay, so that was more about the easy APIs that you can use to use today. Uh, I have an example for speech as well. Uh, speech is now in the limited alpha. You have to uh, sign up for that. I'll just show you a result of what it can look like. Uh, I, I just downloaded an MP3 file from one of the podcasts. Uh, MP3 is not the audio format that we support today, so I converted to FLAC, which is like an open and uh, lossless uh, compressed algorithm. So I converted to it, and again, just like Vision API, I encoded it, posted it to the backend, and it returns the text. Okay. How powerful is that? Uh, so it gives you with the confidence level. Uh, sometimes it's not really high, sometimes it can be many people speaking at the same time, having a lot of background noise. Background noise is generally okay, but uh, please try it out if you're interested, and, you'll, and you can get the text out of the audio. And maybe you can use it as part of, I don't know, conference, meeting, recordings, uh, so that you can help you with uh, generating meeting notes. Yeah, the, it's, the, it's your imagination on uh, how to use this, but well, we are providing a way to turn audio into text, and uh, it's there. Okay, going back. Okay, so now I'm going to talk a little bit about the other side. Uh, TensorFlow, if you really want to know about it, uh, this is what it looks like. It's a, it's a Python-based SDK that allows you to express your tensor to tensor uh, flow. That's where the name comes from, uh, effectively. And once you have that, you can express the calculation you want in a code like this. I wouldn't go into details. If you want to go to the details, there's a great tutorial on the tensorflow.org website. One thing I want to mention is that it runs anywhere. It runs on a Mac runs on a server like this, the server here. You can run it back there. You can run it on your servers. You know, run it on your on-prem on data centers if you want. They come up with a TensorFlow distributed version. You have to do the configuration. Uh, you can leverage the GPUs as well. Unfortunately, it's not on Mac yet. But if it's on a server, you can do that. And it can also run by using GPUs on mobile devices. So imagine doing the learning process in the cloud, taking out the model, not at the place of actually using it, you put the model into a mobile application. You can use the GPUs in the mobile application to run it fast, and then you can do things offline. Right? I'll just skip these. The cloud machine learning, we announced it, but this is still in alpha, private alpha. 
if you have a strong reason that you really want to touch in this alpha phase, let us know. It's really limited at the moment. Eventually, it will turn into beta or public beta, and then everyone will try, uh, try it out. Uh, but uh, please do let us know if you really want to try it. Uh, one thing I wanted to touch here was that I talked about TensorFlow SDK and also about machine learning. But when it comes to machine learning, it really is critical for you to be able to have enough data. So some people try to go straight to machine learning, but actually without solving the big data problem. You might want to be prepared for that. So you can use our cloud storage to store tons of data. Forget about losing data. Forget about removing data just because it doesn't fit in your disk. Disk storage is now really cheap. So use the storage in the cloud to keep your data. You don't know what you can make out of your data today. But it can be really valuable in the future. So unless there's a reason, don't lose data. Uh, if you just want to go quickly scan through the data, we have service like BigQuery. I wouldn't go into details today. If you want to interact with the data using Python code, we have a IPython notebook for Jupyter implementation on Google, which is called Google Cloud Data Lab. So if you're a data scientist and are really used to using those tools, please try out Data Lab. Data Lab, for those who don't know about it, it's like a big data powered wiki. Okay. It's a wiki site that you can write to your your sentences, your content, but you can also write your code and you can run the code in that page. Okay. So if you say, if you have a hypothesis, you can say, this is what I think, this is what I want to try, put in the code, put in a Python code, a SQL code, run it there, visualize it in that page, and say, okay, I have proven that it seems to be okay for this part, but maybe not for this part. Therefore, I want to tweak my uh, code, and next time I'm going to try to do this. So the thought process can be all captured into this uh, data lab page, and that also can be integrated with TensorFlow. So data scientists out there, please try it out. It's data still, uh, but uh, it's totally usable. So for you, uh, I really encourage you to think about today if you think machine learning is something that you're going to be using in the near term or mid term or long term future, what machine learning approach should I take? Okay. Is that going to be your core skill or maybe a business even? Are you going to be a consultant for that? Are you going to help people adopt machine learning? Or is it that you just want to write an application that can adopt these Google Magic? Okay. And it can be somewhere in between as well. If you don't know if you're prepared for data science, there's this a tutorial on the Google Cloud Platform Solutions page, which is called Machine Learning with Financial Time Series Data. This goes through a seven minute video, there's a 20 minute version too, of what one of our data scientists did to collect data, pre-process that, and then apply machine learning. On the pre-process part, you will learn what it actually takes to make a meaningful data or high-quality data. And if you see this, you can, you're probably able to tell if I'm ready for it or not. If you're ready, 
go do it. If you're not, learn or get someone's help. And that help will come from someone in this room, in the community, and if you want to find someone, we can also help you and connect you with the office. If you don't know neural networks, don't know deep learning, go to TensorFlow's uh, playground. It's a great tool. Uh, of time, I wouldn't spend too much, but uh, this is an example. This is a live page. It's running in a craft browser, but say your data looks like this hmm. on the right side. Okay? You want to create a model to classify these dots. As a human, again, it's easy. As a machine, it's not. So what's the kind of model that I can build to actually learn how I can set the boundaries to classify these two groups? Okay. If you don't know neural networks, this is a great tool that you can say, okay, what effect you can get by adding more layers, more nodes, more different algorithms, and you can see it visually. Right? And you'll see how the learning curves can go down uh, quickly, or it can take time. Treat these, it will give you a great visual because these tools didn't use to have a visual. It hard in the past. Now you have these. Uh, please use these. And once you get the basics, this is the tutorial. And at last, please go to some online courses as well. What I highly recommend is uh, Udasky's course because. Mm -hmm. uh, they have a really sophisticated course. It can be for general uh, data science, but it also has some courses built by Google, which are uh, touching more into uh, deep learning. So this one is one of our data, uh, researchers in Google building the course. And it actually uh, happens to be founded by a person who used to be in Google X, uh, Sebastian here, who is actually uh, teaching here is uh, the founder, and uh, he's a person that used to be uh, designing the algorithms for uh, self-driving cars in Google using machine learning. So he's an expert, and he's here to help you with this project. Okay, so that's uh, what I wanted to introduce you today. Uh, I know for you, for some of you, it wasn't technical enough. Maybe you want more, then hands on for you. This tutorial's for you. But it's, you know, I think it's your turn to decide what to do with machine learning. It's going to be a hot topic for quite a long time, I think. And getting there is not easy. So you can prepare, start preparing today, or at least set some strategies, so please do that. For those of you who haven't really started with Google Cloud Platform yet, there's a great $300 worth credit for the mm. So if you sign up for the Google Cloud Platform, you can get $300 to spend. Okay. You still need a credit card, you have to do that. But uh, with $300, you can do a lot. It doesn't matter what APIs you've tried. You can use it for App Engine, the platform of the service, you can use it for compute nodes, virtual machines, you can use it for containers, you can use it for these APIs as well. Okay. So if you want to you know, identify what you're interested in, please play around with it. You know, your technical audience, the only way to get to it is by actually using it. And we want to, we want to support you with it. 
Okay, uh, with that, uh, my session comes to the end. If you don't mind, uh, I have another QR code here, and then if I can get feedback, I'd love to get that get some. And if you don't mind, and if you can leave some contacts here, uh, our team in Singapore can also reach out to you and sending out more updates. Yeah. So, if you don't mind, uh, please do this survey. Okay, that's all for me. Thank you very much for listening. So it is for free. You get $200 free credits. You just have to input your credit card or debit card details. Now, if you don't have a credit card or debit card, I encourage you to get one. I don't know if in Malaysia they have this, but in the Philippines, you can actually get a credit, a debit card for only 30 Malaysian rupees. So the equivalent 30 Malaysian rupees. You fill up a form online, one of our banks, and then you fill up the details. There's no approval process. And then you just walk into the bank, pay 30 rupees, and then you have a, a debit card already. Of course, you know you have you have to load it up first, and then you eventually have it. I don't know if you have it in Malaysia. Do you have something like that? Used to have. Used to have. Yeah. They move backwards. I don't know. It's supposed to be progress, right? Okay, but if you don't have one, I encourage you to get one. You know, if you're ser serious about software development, this is the online world. This is our job. We need to have an online account, and this is how we pay things for now. Unfortunately, they don't accept Bitcoin yet. So, if you're into that, um, you need a credit card still. So go create a project. And then yes, agree to the terms. Read it, if you're into that. It feels like I'm in a storm, right? Over here, reporting from the eye of the storm. It is so cold, I am freezing. Okay. So the Google Cloud Platform is huge. There are a lot of products, there are a lot of services. In fact, let me just show that to you. So if you go to cloud.google.com and then you click on products, these are all the products and services that Google Cloud has. So you have Compute Engine, you have App Engine, Container Engine, you have the storage, you have you know, Cloud Storage, it's like S3, um, near lines like Glacier, Cloud SQL's managed um, or managed database. Cloud Data Store, NoSQL. You have Bigtable. I haven't tried that, but it sounds really good. Um, networking products. You have Big Data for Big Data. And then machine learning. And so we're going to study Vision API today. So that's just one. Um, but before we can do that, we have to enable it. So let me walk that through. So you go to cloud.google.com. I go to my console. I create a project. So 
So the first thing you have to do there is just click here, then create a project. Um, this is not yet launched. Please don't share it. Okay, let's call it Cloud Vision KL. All right, you got that. Create. And it is creating, ladies and gentlemen. It is over here. Let's see how fast Google can create that project. It is spinning up resources in all corners of the world, in several data centers, all at the same time. And ta-da, we have it. Even less than a minute. We're pulling up our project, and the first thing we have to do is to enable the Vision API. Now, the good thing about Google, it does search very well. You just type Vision, and then ta-da, Cloud Vision API. So you click on that. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to enable it. So by default, it is not enabled. So we click Enable. Um, just so that I know. How many of you are actually in this page and didn't get stuck in the credit card part? Yeah. You're, you're in this page? I'm in the credit card now. I just you're in the credit card. Okay, so now you're watching this. So don't worry. You'll get back uh, during the coding session. I'll give you an API key. It's in the document that you can copy. Okay. Okay? All right. So then I'm just going to show you then. This is a demo of how you'll actually do it if you got to the credit card page. So you enable. And enabling is very easy. It's just pressing a button, and it gives you that really nice loader telling you it's enabling. Now, behind the scenes, something is happening, and ta-da, we are now enabled. Yay. So we then click credentials over here, or you can get, go, go to credentials. And it asks you, find out what kind of credentials you need. So I already know what kind of credentials I need. Um, I'm going to get an API key so I can do a browser-based implementation. So let me just skip that. And then create credentials. So API key, OAuth client ID, and service account key. So the service account key is very interesting because it allows you to do like within the Google Cloud Platform like um, credentials space. So that any, any other products and services within the Google Cloud Platform can access the the Cloud Vision API without, without having to do so much more additional authentication. But for this, we'll use the API key. It's a very simple one. We want a browser key, okay? So the thing with the browser key is that, um, for demo, deactivate later. That's a reminder for me so that you don't spam. Um, and then you can whitelist um, the servers or domains that can call this API key so that in case because it's in the browser, other people can see it. And if they can see it, they can steal it. But because of this, you can whitelist the domains so that it will work on other domains and only on your website. So we'll just leave it blank so that everybody can use it. Create. Ta-da! Here is my API key. Yay! I'll copy that. Okay. And then let's put it in the document. So we did that. We did the Cloud Vision API. We pressed Enable. We press enable, we go into credentials, we press create credentials, we chose API key, we chose browser key, um, there, this is now the generated API key, but we'll replace this one with our, whoa, there you go. So this is the new API key, let me check. 
it ends in Q, that ends in Q. Perfect, so we now have our API key for this demo. So now this is where everybody joins in. All right, so first we create a folder in our computer and we call it Pokédex. So I'm gonna put it here in projects. Let me just do that. And then I'm gonna create a new folder and we'll call it Pokédex. Enter. And then what we're gonna do is we're gonna open our preferred text editor and enter the following text. Okay, so I use Sublime. Just let me open this up in Sublime. Okay, make that big. Pokédex. And then let's open this folder in Sublime. All right, so I have, I have here and then I'm gonna enter the following text. Now, we can type this or I can do what every programmer does, which is copy and then paste. Yay. You know when I started uh, programming, um, there was no really internet back then. 1998 Google was just invented. Um, we actually studied using books and we opened the books and we read the sample code and we actually copied that sample code like from the book and like typed it. So those missing semicolons, missing things, they actually happen. Today we're so lucky, we just go to Stack Overflow, copy, control C, control V, control S, teacher, I'm done. Yay. So what do we call this? Um, we'll put it in index.html. So let's put it in our Pokédex and then let's call it index.html. Now, what is this? What is this code? It's very simple. We're just saying this is an HTML5 document. Just so that I know, who here is not familiar with HTML? Raise your hand. Perfect. Yay. JavaScript. You're not familiar? All right. Don't worry. Just ask us later. Um, CSS. Okay, great. So 99.99%, just like the, the availability commitment of the Google Cloud Platform. 99.95%, actually. All right. So we have here our title, Pokédex, and we have input type file. So to have our Pokédex, what we want to do is a way for, we want to create a way for the user to input data into our Pokédex. So this can be the photo that we're asking for. So the photo comes in the form of a file. So we have type file. So let's save that. And let's open it. Um, so let's open. Ta-da! You, you know what, guys? I think I'm... So I actually play music all the time, especially when we get into milestones. So we now have our first working screen. This is serves a round of applause, guys. <laughs> no, you know, programming is hard. Programming is difficult. You know, you have to celebrate every single milestone to keep your sanity. You know, or else you'll be like, oh, it doesn't work. So when it works, celebrate. All right? When it doesn't work, go to sleep. <laughs> when you wake up, you'll probably be like, huh? Why does it work now? I don't even know what I changed. Okay, so we now have a file, uh, file chooser. We open it and let's get some pictures in here, for example. Let's put in, um, let's put in this picture of a cat. Open, ta-da! Well, that's not really great, because right now we just have 
it doesn't work very well. So we have no file, it puts it in there, but it does nothing. So what we should do next is maybe what we should do is get it to preview. So when we choose a file, it should automatically preview in the browser what the file is, if it's an image, and it will show the image, just like a true Pokédex. Okay, so let's revise our code. So we have to add more code. We'll add some CSS to make it look pretty, and we'll add this preview function. So we could type this up, or like every good programmer, whoops, not so good programmer, um, I could copy and paste this thing. So I copy this and I paste it. But let's go through this one by one. So what is happening? So first we added this meta viewport tag. This is because we plan to use our Pokedex in the mobile device. So we take picture with the mobile device and it will then return it what it is. So we'll use it mobile, not on desktop. Um, whoops, okay. So this will make it look nice on mobile. And then we'll add some standard CSS here. We'll increase the font size. We'll change it to color blue. Just a caveat, I am not a good designer. Um, so it will not look amazing. And then we just put some standard um, so it won't look really broken. Okay. And then what we will add here is when the, on the input tag, when the file is changed, so when we add a file or we select a file, we will trigger a preview file function. What does the preview file function do? It previews the file, the But what does it do behind the scenes? All right, so it's a JavaScript file. It's a JavaScript function that runs this code. So what does this do? So first, we will get our preview element, which is the image element. Let's find it, where is that? It's over here. This is the image element. We only have one image element, so we don't need to specify an ID. So we select it, so that's our preview target. That's where we will put the preview image. And then we will have the file element, which is basically our input, so which is this. And then we will instantiate a file reader. Now file reader for, for those, um, this is actually a function in JavaScript or HTML5 that lets you read a file. So we put in the reader and then the way JavaScript is written is like it's weird because you do the stuff that you will do later and you define them ahead. But when the reader, when we load something on the reader, we will basically then set the preview target element, which is this, this one, and we will set the contents of the reader. Okay, so when the, there is a file, the reader will read it as data URL and file. Now what is this data URL? This data URL is the base64 encoded um, details of the file. Okay, so we can even, um, we can log this. So for example, we can log this. Uh, where do we log it? Here, console.log image and then reader.result. We save that. So basically what this file does is that when we change the file, we put in something there, it will then put it in the image in a, as a source. So preview.src. Let's see if this works. Whoops, it's not registered. Don't worry, sometimes it's actually free. I didn't pirate it. It's a good thing they did that, right? Okay, so we then refresh this. See, it looks better. It's now color blue. 
And this is now the image preview section. So our image should appear here if I select something. So we choose a file, we choose the cat again, and ta-da! Ladies and gentlemen, it works. Very good. You see that cat? It's not too happy. Not impressed. All right. So we can also use another file. You can chat. Maybe this one is better. Oh, there. That one's cuter. Oh, let me. Okay, that's cuter. All right. But what is what is the data URL? So let's go to our console. And this is the image file. So this is the base64 encoded version. Whoops, zoom that too much. This is the base64 encoded version of the data you are of the image. So this cat, when you look at it in base64, looks like this. Not too pretty, but the machine can understand. Now why is this relevant? This is great because we can use it for two things. One, we can use it for displaying we can use it for displaying the image in a preview. At the same time, we can send it to the Cloud Vision API. The Cloud Vision API supports two formats. The first format that you can send it to, or the first input that you can send it to, uh, send it, is a link into Google Cloud Storage. So you have to have the image in Google Cloud Storage, and then you can send it to Google Cloud Vision API. That's great because then you know it's on the same platform. The speed is very fast. That's great. But it's very difficult for me to demo because I have to upload it to cloud storage and then you know set up so we'll be mixing up too many technologies at the same time. So we can also send it a base64 encoded string that is actually an image. So this is great because then we can use it. All right, so we go to the next step. All right, so the next step is the cat. We want to identify. This is the part where we throw it to the Cloud Vision API. So this, we're adding two, um, a few things. So first, we're going to add a results element. So it's just a div, we're gonna put results, and that's where we're gonna show what the Google Cloud Vision API throws us back. And then, in the load function, aside from just showing the preview, we're also going to send it to the vision function. The vision function, we made this, uh, I just made this, this is not like an SDK or something. But just to let you know, it's very easy to use. So the vision function, now the vision function simply assembles the URL, adds the API key, and then prepares the payload, which is basically saying um, requests, and then the features that I request, which is currently labeled detection, we can add more later, and then the image, and then the content is the string that was passed over here, which is the base64 encoded image. And then we're gonna query selector the results div and we're gonna say sending while we're sending it. And finally, we're gonna send it using the post method to the URL as application JSON. And then the data type is JSON. And then we're gonna send over the payload. And then when it's done, we're just gonna record in our console what the response was in the data. And then we're gonna iterate over it. This is basically just a function that makes it look, look pretty because it's like a whole nested JSON list. So we extract the label annotations and we push it to a description list variable. We push both the, the name and the score. The score is like the level of certainty that the Vision API thinks what the object is. So you can say like, I'm 99% sure this is a cat, 
or maybe I'm 50% sure this is a carpet. So, and then no responses if there's nothing that um, was returned. And then this basically just outputs it as a formatted, you know, div, which is HTML stuff. Now, of course, this is not the right way to do it because I'm putting myself here as a prone to injection. But if you're doing this production system, just make sure that you're doing the necessary security measures. And then finally, we're going to insert the formatted HTML stuff, great variable names, uh, <laughs> into the results in our HTML. And then we should be done. It should work. So let's copy that. Ta-da, 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 ta-da. Whoops. Ta-da. Copy. And then paste. Let me just replace one thing. What should we replace here? API key. Perfect, very great. So we just removed the API key and I'm gonna replace it with the one that we have. Where is that? Over here. Save that. And we are now gonna refresh it. Refresh, choose file. And then let's choose this, this, this one still. Let's see. Ta-da! What the? Nothing happened. Uncaught syntax error. Missing something after argument list. Preview file is not defined. It's a good thing Google Chrome has great debugging tools. Where is it? Show me. It's a UPF encoded. When you paste it from Google, are you serious? What? I didn't know this. Where is my UTF encoded quote? Line 81. Wow, it's a beautiful quote. I like that quote better. Say that. What line 81? Let's try it again. One more time. Cat doggy. Open. Yeah! Let's see if it returns. Yeah! Ladies and gentlemen, it works. Round of applause. Now, you know, it, it's very difficult to do demos like this and sound so amazing because it looks so simple. It's like, wow, what an amazing thing just happened. But it's like, it's so easy. It's like people are unimpressed. They're like, oh, oh, yeah, return a cat. It returned animal, mammal. But, have you tried programming? Like, you know, how do you try making your own, like, identify this image? I give you a cat doggy like this. If I was your teacher, I'm like, okay, this is your assignment, okay? You create an algorithm and a program. I give you this picture, it should return this. And then it should return accurately. Boy, that's like doctorate level. That's hard. But now, because of Cloud Vision, you have access to this kind of power. And this power made it look so simple. It's like having like a power drill. You know, before they do like the drill really, let me show you something, it just reminded me of that. Um, was that, uh, ham, Jack Hammer, how to use um, this guy. I don't know if you've seen this guy. Oh, come on. Load, please. Uh, 
So there you have it. Um, we identified successfully a cat. And that's the end of our code lab. No, I'm just kidding. That's, <laughs> it's the end of the, the tutorial, but what I want you to do is I want to do a challenge. Like, you know, as developers, we shouldn't be spoon-fed. Oh, just copy-paste, 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 and then we don't know after the end. Oh, I just copy-paste it. Like, look at the source. Look at the tutorial. Copy-paste. No, I want to challenge you and do it yourself, but I will also do it in front of you um, right now. So what can we do? We can add several more features to this. So not only figure out a label for the cat, but we can also detect landmarks, detect faces. So first, let's detect landmarks. All right. Okay. The first thing we will do is go to cloud.google.com and I'm going to search for images. Uh, vision. Vision. So I just want to make sure that I get the correct, correct API um, parameters. So I go to view documentation. The documentation is really um, useful. And then JSON reference. It only has one method. And the method is annotate. And it has this ton of information what you can do, do in it. But I'm interested in knowing what we can get from Google Cloud Vision. So we have here, let me increase that. So we have face detection, landmark detection, logo detection, label detection, text detection, which is like OCR, optical character recognition, safe search detection to filter out explicit stuff. Mm. Or if you're that, you can just filter for explicit stuff. Um, image properties. We're going to try first um, landmark detection. Landmark detection. So in our code base, what we will do is we're going to add to our features. Right now, it's a list. It's an array. Okay. So it only has one object. We're only asking for label detection. We'll say, okay, I want more than label detection. I also want landmark detection. So we just add another object saying, I want another one, type landmark detection. Save that. And then, let's see. Let us see. Okay, we refresh our code. We get a file. We get um, another pic a picture of the cat. Ta-da, sending. Sending, yay. Let's see what's our response. It has one, only one, label annotation. Oh, well, this is not really a landmark, is it, right? So let's get a landmark. Let's see if we can search for a landmark. What do you want? Petronas Towers. What? I don't know. Petronas Towers. So let's see. Um, let's give Google an easy one first. All right, let's get this one. It's a new image. And let's get another angle, Petronas Towers. Let's see if it can detect it. Dun, dun, dun. The internet is loading. Because we are all loading at the same time. All right. Let's save this image. Put the pictures. Let's change it to PT. So we don't include the file name. But we don't really send the file name. We just send B64. That was a stupid move. All right. So we have the Petronas Towers. Let's we added it there. Let's choose a file. PT. Open. Wow. Sending. Dun 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 dun. Why am I doing JOS? Alright. <laughs> Object. Responses. 
We have two! Woo! Time to play some music. Where's my music? <laughs> Guys, this is serves a celebration, all right? It was able to do, but of course you're not so excited. You are not dancing with me because we don't know yet if it's correct or not, right? So first we have label. So what the label is a skyscraper, correct? It's a tower block. I don't know what a tower block is. Residential area. Is that a residential area? No. No. It's 85% sure. Okay. It's a tower. All right. It's a city. All right. It's in a city. Now let's go to the landmark annotations. Landmark annotations, we have one. It's the Petronas Teen Towers. Now we celebrate, ladies and gentlemen. All right. So... It gave us not only that, but it gave us the bounding. Okay, it gave us the bounding um, parameters of where it is. So you know how um, this morning there were like in the demo, it's like a bounding box of where the face is. So you can actually put a bounding box of where the where the Petronas Twin Towers are. These are the x and y coordinates for this perimeter, and then location. It also gives you the latitude, longitude of the landmark. Yeah, you have a question? What? My my face? You wanna check out what the, if Google thinks of my face? And my location? We'll see. Okay, that's very good. All right. Okay, so we also take a picture of you. So that's me and you. Okay. All right. So. Okay, so it works in the Petronas Twin Towers. So let's find another angle, okay? Let's find another angle of uh, Petronas. You know what? Let's send it a picture of what I took last night. Um, where's my Google Photos? Hold on, hold on. Because, you know, Google already knows it's Petronas Twin Towers because we're getting it from images that Google.com, right? So we'll get one here that I took a picture of. That one. This one, this one, huh? What do you think? Yeah. Download that. Okay. So we got it there. Um, we downloaded it. Alright, so let's see. Pokedex. Choose file. Downloads. This one. Yep, it's that one. Open. I have not tried this before. Okay, so remember, um, let's see. It's a skyscraper, it's at night. Wow, yeah, I know this, I do. It's a tower city and it's, there's light. All right, so what is the response? Taron, array one. Oh, oh, that's two. All right, landmark annotations, object. It's still the Petronas Twin Tower. That is super cool. That's even only one tower, right? Okay, I, I just love it. I had a lot of fun doing this because it's just really amazing. Now, obviously, I don't know, it's not perfect, but it's just great. Like, if you show this to a normal person outside Malaysia, I wouldn't know what this is. I have to see the Twin Towers so that I can be like, oh, there's the bridge, oh, there's the Petronas Twin Towers. But with this, you're only seeing half of it, and it can still tell it's in the uh, Petronas Twin Towers. It still gives you the location, it still gives you the latitude, longitude. So that's really, really great. Okay. Let's move on. So enough with landmark detection. What else do we do? We can do logo detection. So let's add logo detection. Logo detection. 
Lethalis logo detection. So I didn't include code to like display it. You know, that's trivial for you. You can do that on your own. You can format whatever way you want. Mm -hmm. But we're just seeing the source code coming in. I mean, the, the raw code. I think it's better so that also everyone can appreciate, even if you're not JavaScript. We're doing this for you, brother. And you're not even listening. <laughs> I said we are doing this for you. All right, so does this make sense? You can follow it? Code makes sense? All right, that's good then. Okay, so we do logo detection. All right, okay, so logo detection. Let's refresh it. So what will we um, choose file? I have some sample here. It was, let's see, let's see. Desktop, no, no, no. Pictures. So I have here like tech logos, right? Just like, oh, before we do that, we do a uh, uh, Google. <laughs> let's see. Let's throw Google his own logo and see what Google thinks of himself. <laughs> Open. Sending. So it says it's a uh, in the label detection. It says it's text, it's art, it's a logo, it's a font, it's an area. I don't know why area, but let's see if it was able to successfully add logo detection. Oh yeah, ladies and gentlemen, we have logo annotations. All right. And then, the bounding poly, this is the bounding poly, uh, poly, uh, polygon, and then it says it's Google. No, no big deal. I mean, Google knows Google. All right. Try making an algorithm for that. Um, let's add another one. Let's choose another one. This one, I like this because it's like tech logos, right? Okay. So, a lot of tech logos. Let's put it in. Open. Sending, sending. It thinks it's a web page, a document, a computer program, and an area. I don't know why it says area. But anyways, what did it respond in the logo? It had five results for the logo. Obviously, um, it didn't see everything. Um, it missed a few. But it saw Hitachi. Where is Hitachi? Hitachi, Hitachi. Right there, right there Hitachi. One point. SanDisk, two points. How do you say it? NVIDIA. NVIDIA, NVIDIA, NVIDIA. There. Three. BA Systems. Wow, I didn't even know that company. Where is that? Where is BA? BA, BA. <laughs> Do you know that company? Did I miss it already? There, BIA, Think Liquid. Wow. And finally, PayPal. Where's PayPal? Right there. And I ask myself, why no Google? Because Google is saying, ah, that's our old logo. I don't care anymore. All right, so it wasn't able to detect everything, but it was able to detect us um, five logos. Okay, what else, what else? Let's see if it can detect logos embedded within images, like normal photos. Let's see, um, Starbucks, Starbucks mug. Let's see if it can detect this one. Oh no, this one is more natural, right? Uh, but it's a small image. It usually doesn't work well with small images. This changes to, to a large, size large. 
Um, which one do you use? This one? It's so clean. Maybe this one. So that there's not no distraction around, right? This one is too clean. It's like a shopping cart. This one, more natural. Alright? So, this one. Okay, let's save this one. You know what? Let's not save it. Let's screenshot it. I'm going to screenshot it. Okay, we have the screenshot. Let's close that. Refresh. Choose file. Where is that? In my desktop. It's a screenshot. Right there. Okay, that's it. Let's open it. Let's send it over and let's see. I have not done this before. We'll find out together if it works. It is a mug. It's drinkware. Have you heard of drinkware? <laughs> oh, can you please pass me a drinkware? <laughs> athlete. I don't know why athlete. Tableware and a coffee cup. Maybe athletes like to drink coffee. I don't know. So let's see, what is it here? Responses. We have a logo annotation. What is it? What could it be? Of course, these are labels, but the logo is Starbucks, ladies and gentlemen. A screenshot of an image of a mug that had a Starbucks logo on it, and it worked. So, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Okay, so we now have logo detection. We have label detection, we have landmark detection. To your favorite, what do you want? Let's try face. I thought you were going to say uh, safe search detection. Um, face detection. All right, so face detection. Let's try it. We can't do um, safe search detection here. It will not be very good to do on a public thing. So just run it on your own. All right, so let's go to face detection. Um, let's add it here. Type face detection <coughs> save that and let's upload some faces so refresh as you can see I am like rubbing my arms like an evil villain right like yeah, let's see it's actually very cold my hands are like frozen already <laughs> I can barely feel it so let's put some faces in it so Okay, so you want um, my photos where I've been. Let's see if it can see a face. Let's see a face here. Uh, that one, the half one. Like, where, where? This one? No, underneath. Uh, okay, uh, say stop. Okay, no, no, go back up. I'll go back up, alright. Which one uh, do you want? The one, that one in the ship or the plane, the, the blue seats one. This one? The one next to it on the left. This one? Alright, yeah. let's try that. Okay. Let's take a screenshot of that. Let's see, because I'm not sure if it can do a resolution like this, but let's take it. Alright. It is so cold. Alright, that is it. Question is, will it think I'm a face or not? So it's a sports, it thinks it's a sports venue. Maybe it looks like a stadium, maybe not, but it's actually another GCP Next Extended um, in Cagayan de Oro City in the south of the Philippines last week. So we have an object, responses, we have object, face, annotations. It detected five faces, ladies and gentlemen. 
five. The first phase is and your likelihood. So, so not only do I need to take a phase, it can actually tell you what the emotion of the phase is. So, anger likelihood, it's very unlikely, so not angry. Blurred likelihood, um, if the image was blurred, uh, no, it is very unlikely. So, the bounding poly is the where you, what you will use for the bounding box of the face. So, we can 38 degrees X, Y 300 degrees, so maybe this, I don't actually know. Um, but you can plot it out, and then we start the bounding pol uh, polygon. Hmm. Detection confidence, 99% sure it's a face. Headwear likelihood, very unlikely, so no headwear. This guy surely doesn't have a headwear. Um, joy likelihood, very unlikely. So what is it really? Uh, it wasn't able to show the emotion here, but it clearly sh knew that it was a face. So now I want, to you to sh I want to show you landmarks. What do you mean landmarks? This is a face. The landmarks of the face. Did you know that your face has landmarks? Like your nose tip, that's a landmark. Your left lip, that's a landmark. So what they use these landmarks to do like facial recognition. Like you know in TV, like in the movies, they take a picture of you like surveillance system and like match, 100%. Yeah, it's in the movies like that, but in reality, that's what they use for facial recognition. So these are the landmarks. So let's open it. There's a lot of landmarks. Let's go over it. All right. So the first landmark is the left eye. The left eye and the position is X, Y, and then Z. It sounds like a 3D component, doesn't it? Like the Z axis. Mm. So I haven't really looked into that, but if you're really interested, you can look it up. So left eye. Next landmark is right eye. So if you can put the red dots, you can put it on the X and Y so you could have like the, the, the landmark to the face. Left of left eyebrow. Right of left eyebrow. So you have like a like left and right of your right eyebrow. Uh, right of left, sorry. Right of your left eyebrow. But the problem, what happens if your like eyebrow is like connected, right? Like Google, like I have a hard problem putting it there. So, yeah. Left of right eyebrow. Right of right eyebrow. Midpoint between eyes. Right here. Nose tip. Upper lip. So this one, lower lip. It's not only detecting the face, it's detecting the landmarks. Mouth left, over here. Mouth right. Mouth center. Oh. Nose bottom right. It's like you're wondering, are you having a cold lap or an anatomy lesson? Nose bottom left. Nose bottom center. Left eye top boundary. Uh, left eye right corner. Here. Left eye bottom boundary. Okay. Left eye left corner. Left eye pupil. It can see where you're looking at. You know, it's like the face is looking, but Google can tell what you're looking at. The angle is different. No, because you can correlate the left corner, the left, uh, the left corner and the right corner, and then the pupil and the distance between the two can tell where it's looking at, right? Hold on. So interesting. Right eye top boundary. Oh, so we're doing the right eye now. That was just the left eye, by the way. So the, the, the right eye pupil. 
Left eyebrow, upper midpoint. Oh my goodness, it can know if you're like me like that. Or like that. Left ear, trajan. What is the world is a trajan? Trajan. Trajan. It's near the ear. It's the ear. Okay, left ear, trajan. Right ear, trajan. Forehead, glabella. Whoa. We need a doctor in the house. Forehead glabella. Chin gnadion. I have no idea. Google it. Chin left gonion. Oh my gosh. Chin right gonion. I am happy we're done with the landmarks. And then you have the pan angle. So is the face looking straight or is it panned? The pan angle. The roll angle. Sorrow like Leo and surprise. Tilt angle. Okay. I think I might have missed this, mixed it up. I don't know. The roll angle is maybe like roll and then tilt. I don't know. Underexposed like Leo. And by the way, that's just the first phase. Let's do the second phase. I'm just kidding. So there you have five phases that this detected on this picture. One, two, maybe even this, three. Four, I hope it detected my face. Four, five, I don't know. All right, five faces. So that's face detection. Now what's interesting here, what we can do is, we've already done this. Text detection, label, detec label detection, logo detection, landmark detection, face detection. Let's do text detection. All right, let's add the final one, text detection. Oh, that was stressful, the face. So many landmarks. Type text detection. Save that. You hear that? That's still the aircon blowing in me. What? Last week. Okay, so we added text detection. Let's add something with the text. Does this have text? It has text, right? It's a Starbucks coffee. Now, I've never tried before on tilted and like waving text, so let's give it a try. Let's see. Open, ten. Let's play some background music for suspense. It's a mug. Uh, again, again, again. It's a mug there. Let's turn it off to see and concentrate if it really detected the text. So, yes, yeah, space annotations, label annotations, logo annotations and text annotations. What is inside the text annotation? Remember, this is just a screenshot that we took of a photo we got from the internet, okay? It's not preloaded, nothing like that. The first text is... Back off. <laughs> so it was able to detect back off. So the Google Cloud Vision API is still in beta. So it will only get better from here. All right. So it wasn't able to detect the uh, the wave text, but it was able to detect the one that was like buck off, and then it thinks like ah, this is no longer. But as more images are added to the system, it becomes better. It gets trained and will be able to tell these things. So buck off. What's the other one? Buck only, and then. 
of. Actually, the first response is all the text that you can find in, in the image. The second and the, and the following ones are the individual ones. And then it has a bounding poly, polygram, object, polygram, polygon, so that you can put a box where you can determine where it is in the image. Okay? Let's upload a, another image. Let's look for um, street signs. Let's see if I have street signs in my personal photo. La la la, street signs. You can just search for it. What? I don't want to search for it because if I search for it, it's like Google already knows it, right? So, mm -hmm. let's see. This one. Welcome to Pamilakan Island. Oh, it's a video. This one. Welcome to Pamilakan Island Dolphin. Let's take a screenshot of that. Okay. So, stop that. Alright, so, let's go here. Choose file. Sending. Tadun, tadun. By the way, this is in Bohol. It's a nearby island in, Barak, uh, in Cebu. It's like one hour away um, by boat. This is where we watched the Captain Phillips <laughs> video. So it's an advertising. It's a billboard. It's a banner. It's a signage. It's like saying the four things that are synonyms anyway. All right. So that's great. So let's see here if it has text annotations. And it does. All right. What does it think it says? A lot of text. Well, the first one will contain the whole thing, and then the subsequent ones will contain the each word that it finds. Each, um, yeah. So let's read it. ECQ. Uh, it thinks it's a Q. EC. Oh, welcome to. This is New Line. So it's like enter, right? Welcome to New Line. Do. New Line. And whale watching tour. Oh, the luxury of simplicity, got this one, new line, in nature and people, new line, program partners, it saw that guys, program partners, JICA, and that's the image, uh, that's the, that's the, there, so first ECQ, which is actually echo. Welcome to do. So it didn't catch dolphin, just do and echo. Pretty good, isn't it? It calls for a celebration. Round of applause, guys. All right, let's upload another one. Um, somebody's recording me. Ah, not the baby. All right, um, let's look for a sign, if we can find a street sign. Let's see. Well, that's a t-shirt. Mm. Let's try that one. Okay. Let's send it over. Okay, sending. And it sent, and what does it think? It's a t-shirt, vehicle, auto racing, motorsport. Wow, that's a tricycle. It is not definitely auto racing. <laughs> Imagine auto racing on a tricycle. What? Yeah, Makati City in, in the Philippines. So, 
It's election time right now. It actually says, ang ganda ng buhay sa Makati. It actually means, oh, life is so beautiful in Makati. And then the irony is the guy wearing it is like having to do a pedicab thing, like a tricycle, tricycad, like uh, you have to pedal. So I took a picture of that one. It's quite ironic. Text annotations. What did it say? Let's see. It says, fair enough. It says, ing, ing. It's, it looks like an ing, definitely, right? You can tell it's an a, but it's an ing, ing ganda. It thinks it's a V S Buhay sa Makati. www.makati.d.ph. That's pretty good. Right? Round of applause, guys. Do you have a question? Uh, does text annotation work only with English or it can detect like Russian, Chinese? Russian. <laughs> Russian, I do not know. Chinese, I haven't tried. So uh, that would be your assignment, okay? Throw in some Russian stuff and some Chinese stuff, right? And and also maybe even some Malaysian. What's your language here? Malay. Malay. Okay. Throw in some Malay, Shen language, <laughs> and then see how that works. And then you you would know for sure. But ang ganda ng buhay sa Makati is not English. It is Tagalog, Filipino. Uh, Latin, so letters, right? Oh, you mean like the characters? Yeah. yeah. So try that. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, just try it out. Remember, it's still in beta. Yeah, so there's yeah, there's a Google Translate API actually. It also runs on it's part of the cloud machine learning platform. So yeah, it's a different API. So I don't know. I don't really know how it's internally. Maybe they use the Cloud Vision API to then feed it and take the o use OCR to get the text out and then send a translation API, send it back, and then uh, I don't I know I don't know how they actually do it, but definitely you can build it yourself using these two tools. So you can use the OCR component here text detection to extract the text. You can throw it to the translation API. The translation API also has an auto detect language feature. So you don't even have to say, okay, this is from whatever language. So auto detect what language it is. And then you can specify a destin excuse me. You can specify a destination language and then you have that same exact feature. And what took years probably of Google to invent that? I don't know if it took years. You know, you will just then do in like overnight hackathon and you feel so cool. Right? So that's the power that you have already because of these technologies that are made public, are made available to us, even as students or basically anybody. So we now did um text, um we see. We did landmark, label, landmark, logo, face, text. What else did we not do? Face, landmark, logo, label, text. We're not going to do safe search. Um, but we have the code. I have the code base. Um, it's, I also deployed it in Firebase. Mm. We have vision-demo.firebaseapp.com. So what's nice about this is that I can open it on my mobile. But I don't have Wi-Fi on my mobile. Um, how do I connect to the Wi-Fi and the mobile? You can connect on it, vision-demo.firebaseapp.com and then you can take photos and, of your person beside you and see if it can detect the face. So the, the code base for this is exactly the same. You notice it? It still does the whole label detection, face detection, local detection, landmark detection. It doesn't do the text. 
And then I added a few things here so it will display the number of faces. So the faces count of the number of faces it can detect. So open that. Let me try to connect to the Wi-Fi. Well, also you connect to the Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi wireless at APU. Eight. Sorry, eight, four, seven. It's the same thing, right? TP. Is it capital? Yeah, capital. Uh oh, I've been doing this wrong. It's obviously capital. Why? Why did I think not capital? It's very hard to type with frozen fingers. I just realized that zero three three. It's like your fingers don't respond to your orders. It's like there's lag time. Done. Login. Wow. Okay. I took a picture of my breakfast yesterday. Let's see. Vision-demo. Firebaseapp.com. All right, I am in. I don't know if you can see it, but let's take a picture of you guys. Take photo. My favorite guy over here. Smile for the camera. Use photo. All right, so it's there. It's ending. It says youth. Thinks you're young, man. Good. Audience, community. And faces, five faces. Round of applause, guys, for our Pokédex. Let me count on you. There's one, two, three, four, five. It wasn't able to detect the faraway people, mm. but not bad, not bad. Five faces. One more. Let's take another photo. Let's take a photo of. Um, what should we take a photo of? This one, the Kaluwar one. Oh, it detected half a face. The person is facing this side, and they also detected half a face. It looks weird because um, the image is like it's a the, picture of my the friend, light distorts it. Colleague. But let's see what it thinks. Yes, retired already, so. Display device, room, signage, clock. Search around the blood. Let's see what else. What? The carpet. The, the carpet. The garbage bin. I knew it. I knew it was gonna happen. Zoom, zoom in. I'll just take a picture from afar. It's like somebody who just comes in right now, like wondering why are they taking a picture of the garbage bin? So there's our garbage bin. What does Google think? Google Cloud Vision. Pattern, crochet, bag, lip. Well, yeah, it noticed the carpet and the wall pattern. Wow. Sound detection? What kind of sound it is? Like the garbage bin? No, no, not yet. That's actually maybe a good idea for you to build on top of the cloud machine learning um, <coughs> platform. Like the sound of stuff, and it can tell you what it is. Right now, what there is actually in limited uh, preview is the speech API. You give it human voice, which is like me talking right now, and then you can output text or um, the speech or to text. Speech API is speech to text. And it can handle two types of input. Uh, first is just an audio file one time, or it can also add, you can handle streaming. 
So you can do like live streaming or something and then you can automatically like add subtitles or something. Yeah, so for example, if I'm talking and then you can have subtitles there of me talking and then you can run that through the translation API and then you can provide like other language subtitles. Now obviously I might say some funny stuff and sound funny um, on the other languages, but yeah. Right, right. So what you have is okay. So this is a pre-trained model. It's a classifier model for pre uh, pre-trained for images, gener generic images. Now that works well in like you know generic applications like what is this, what is that. But if you want like fine-grained custom um, detection, machine learning detection for for something like that, like image um, uh, medical images to detect patterns in cancer or something like that. That's really exciting actually. I think you would need to build that on top of like TensorFlow. So it's like machine learning really, because you have to customize your model and you have to run it. And then I think um, the purpose of the cloud ML platform is so that you can run TensorFlow on top of the cloud so that the training is done faster. So what you will need to do ahead of time, while well, it's not yet being released, uh, although TensorFlow is already available, try it out, um, is you would have to have people like go ahead and say, this photo um, was taken of a person who has cancer. This photo, uh, this image is a person of somebody who doesn't have cancer. And you have as many of those images that you can use as training data. So there is some technical um, um, aspect involved in creating a model and customizing your model um, in, in TensorFlow, for example. But then once you input that and it works, um, it can then create um, your, your trained model. So then you can give it a new image that's not included before that nobody has classified. And then it can give its own classification and say 89% likely to have cancer. And if you have a lot of images that come in, you can then have somebody like flag that if it has a high threshold. Or it can be sort of like informational as well, um, data to the, to the doctor or to the medical professional. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. thank you so much. Yeah. So Vision API is really more of like a, as a service, prepackaged for the masses. If you want like and ready to use, if you want something more custom, you can also do that. Um, use TensorFlow. So it's really custom. It also requires some level of um, technical expertise as well. But definitely you can you can use it. And then when CloudML is released, you can then use CloudML, Cloud Machine Learning, to put your models from TensorFlow and run them on the cloud. Other questions? It's not working with Russian. It's not working with Russian. What kind of Russian? Russian, Russian. Okay, so it doesn't work with Russian on his um, uh, experiment, so yeah, so too bad. All right, but it will definitely get better. <laughs> yeah, so Google has access to so many images all around the world. Um, definitely probably maybe more English than Russian, but eventually um, the Russian could be covered eventually. Or if not, you could build your own model and you could use CloudML. To detect that, let's take one more photo. For, for um, as requested, I will take my own photo, and let's see if Google detects me as a face. And where you are. And where I am? Well, I don't think it can detect. Well, maybe where I am. No? But this is not. It detects landmarks, like where you are. It's a landmark. Like it doesn't detect like oh APU. APU is not a very landmark, but it will detect like Eiffel Tower. The Golden Gate Bridge, um, the the Petronas Towers, for example. All right.
sending chess. What the? Chess. We look like a chessboard. We're a toy. Games. Google thinks I'm a plaything. Board game. Faces zero. Oh, come on. Let's do that again. I don't accept. Read it, read it. It's blurry. Ah, blurry. Okay, let's try this again. That one. Okay. Better, Google better be right this time, around. It's a pet! <laughs> a Pomeranian! What in the world is a Pomeranian? It's a tired puppy. It's a kind dog, of puppy. Dog, dog. A dog breed group faces zero. <laughs> Somebody is making fun of me. I don't accept this. I need a better background. Maybe you guys are screwing it up. Maybe I'm smiling too much. I look too cute. Person, 96%! That deserves a round of applause, guys. And music as well. A woman, 88%. What the heck? <laughs> You know, Google Cloud Vision API will definitely have to get better from now on. So yeah, that concludes our Google Cloud Vision API code lab for today. Go ahead and use the API key for a few days. I'll be disabling it after this. And yeah, thank you very much ladies and gentlemen. Have a good afternoon.
great. Um, so today I'm going to be talking about Kubernetes and uh, give an overview of Kubernetes and uh, some uh, um, an update, uh, as well as talk a little bit about uh, give a little bit of a, an overview of Container Engine and, and what that is. Um, but I won't get too much into that. I'll be mostly talking about Kubernetes itself. So uh, just to give a, uh, a introduction to, uh, to me, uh, I'm Ian Lewis. I'm a developer advocate at uh, Google, and uh, I work on the Google Cloud Platform. So I work with folks like, uh, like Morty Taifan, who I uh, gave a presentation earlier today. Uh, and uh, I work in, I live in Tokyo, Japan. I've been in Tokyo for about 10 years. Uh, so, um, I've been working uh, in APAC and doing uh, lots of you know, talks and things like that in APAC for a long time. Uh, so, I'm really happy to be uh, to be talking to you guys today. Um, and I also do like Twitter and stuff like that. So, if you guys are really uh, want to hang out and like you know uh, give me feedback on the presentation or things like that, then uh, you can get me at uh, Ian M. Lewis uh, on Twitter. So diving right in, um, so I want to give like a little bit of a context overview of like containers and, and uh, so basically for the last 15 years Google has been building like the biggest, uh, the world's most fastest uh, infrastructure uh, and we did this mostly for our services and to make uh, things like Gmail and search work, uh, work really, really well for, for our users. Um, and uh, not just like the, the data centers themselves, but, uh, but Google's uh, backbone network. So all of the networks that, contain, that connect the data centers together, uh, those are all uh, built by Google and, uh, and owned by Google. So we have our own uh, uh, network between the data centers that's, uh, that's very, very fast and it's only used for, for, Google, uh, for Google traffic. And of course, like so, having built that infrastructure, uh, we've uh, that's enabled us to build all kinds of really great products. Things like uh, Search and Gmail and and Maps uh, and and Chrome and YouTube and things like that. Um, so, like things like you know, like Gmail has like you know, you know, four four hundred million users or something like that, and like you know, Search has like just billions of, of queries every day. Uh, so these are very, very large services uh, that we have created on our, our network or on our, our infrastructure. And as part of the network, uh, we've also, uh, we have uh, edge locations in 33 countries uh, and we have over 70 uh, of these edge locations. Like this is more than any cloud provider. So we work really hard to get people's uh, traffic onto the network as fast as possible. Uh, and uh, make it so that you can access, uh, the end users can access the services as fast as possible. And then we've, uh, we're now starting to uh, kind of focus on um, building uh, a cloud platform that, uh, that allows other people to, to make use of, um, of our infrastructure. So things like um, from big data uh, to storage uh, to computing uh, to network and monitoring, uh, but also things like development tools and value-added kind of services. So things like App Engine and Big Data and BigQuery, which uh, 
you, where you don't manage the servers, servers at all, but you just interact with an API uh, that allows you to, uh, to develop applications and, and, and utilize and access big data and things like that. And so, so not just like in the services and in the, the hardware, uh, we've also uh, invested quite a lot in software technology. Uh, so uh, from things like our distributed file system, GFS, uh, the Google file system, uh, to things like MapReduce uh, to handle big data and uh, to uh, our huge database, distributed database, Bigtable, and to uh, Colossus. Uh, which really replaced GFS. This is these are uh, for storing file large amounts of files. Uh, we've made huge strides in software innovation, uh, and we've given contributed back to the community in form of white papers, uh, which kind of talk about the architecture of all of these. And so things like MapReduce have spawned uh, open source projects like Hadoop, uh, and Bigtable has spawned things like HBase, um, and so. Uh, a lot of these like architectural things have really helped drive innovation. Uh, and one of the most recent white papers that we've released is on our distributed container schedule called Borg. So this brings me to what I really want to talk about today, which is uh, containers. Uh, so we've been, uh, Google has been using uh, container technology uh, with Borg uh, for over about over 10 years now. Uh, so long before things like you know uh, the industry has sort of kind of come around to containers, we've been using it quite a, for quite a long time. Uh, every service at Google runs in containers, uh, so uh, we start over two billion containers every week. Um, so this is quite a lot of containers that we run. Uh, so these are essentially just processes, but uh, we run them in containers, and so that gives you an idea of like how many of these things, of these containers we're actually running. Um, and so we think that because we've been using containers for about 10 years, we have uh, more experience with containers than just about anybody. Uh, we've been uh, using it for a long time. We know what works and what doesn't. So, so Borg's architecture was written in a uh, white paper uh, that you can read online. Um, so here's the URL to it if you're if you're interested. Um, but uh, I'll kind of give a brief overview of what it does uh, here. Uh, we have uh, many clusters of of Borg uh, running on our data centers, uh, and each cluster is about roughly 10,000 machines or 10,000 servers, uh, and is managed by a Borg master. So this is like a, a master server. And then each of those 10,000 machines has our workers that actually run the containers. And uh, each one runs a what's called a boardlet on the master to get instructions on what to run. Uh, so this, that's really kind of the uh, a short overview of the architecture. Uh, but I'm going to kind of run through how uh, we actually just, uh, deploy an application to, uh, uh, to that system. So imagine you want to run an application like here in the data center. Like, how would you actually run an application uh, with so many machines, like all these machines out uh, in, in a data center or in a, in a cluster? Uh, there are thousands of other applications that might be running here. Um, 
and these could potentially step on each other's toes. They could interfere with each other by using too much RAM or CPU and causing the other processes to basically stop or not have enough uh, resources to run. Um, so, and there's also many, many servers. Like, how do you decide which server to actually run your application on and which ones uh, um, not to and which ones, uh, how to make your applications be able to talk to each other on the network. Uh, so you can imagine if you tell the system uh, that each application uh, instance or each uh, process that I need to run uh, requires about a 10 to the CPU core and about 100 megabytes of memory. So you basically tell it how much CPU memory or resources you want to, uh, to use. Uh, and you, then you can say, OK, I want to run five of these processes or five of these, uh, these instances uh, of my application. Um, so, and if you do that, that helps split the load around for the application. So you do like maybe load balancing or something like that. Uh, but this is essentially what we actually do. Um, so from the developer's perspective, uh, you give a Borg, uh, you create a, a Borg config, uh, and the user specifies this. And so what they do is they specify which cluster they want to run in, uh, and then they specify which application they want to actually run. Uh, so this is like uh, basically like a container image. Um, things like uh, ports uh, that you want to use for the network uh, so that your applications can talk to each other. And then you specify things like how much your RAM and uh, disk you actually want to, uh, to use for your app. So your application can use 100 megabytes of, of RAM, and maybe it uses so much disk and so much CPU. And then you can kind of tell it how much, uh, how many replicas or how many instances of it. Uh, so you can basically multiply the requirements here uh, by five to get the total amount of resources that you're going to use. But this number of replicas can actually be quite large. You know, like maybe you, you want to deploy 10,000 uh, instances. Um, so you can, you can do that as well. And like the server will, or Borg, or the, uh, the, the container scheduler will actually uh, be able to manage that for you. So all you need to do is just uh, specify a new number of, of replicas. And so when you do that, you actually, you tell the, the system to start these up uh, applications up, and then it will actually start uh, running each of the replicas. So I can say, like, uh, I want to run 10,000, uh, and then it will go actually find a place to run those and uh, and start running them. And so that can take a little bit of time, but you can see, like, uh, um, internally we have, like, these little graphs that will show you uh, as the application gets started, how many running uh, instances are actually running and uh, how much are, uh, of the application is fully uh, fully utilized. So the result of that is like, is so what did we actually do when we deployed it? Um, so um, what we basically do is we just tell the, uh, we save our, our application into an application store. And then we tell the Borg, the master, uh, that uh, we want to run our application. So we just give it our Borg configuration uh, that we just wrote. And then uh, the scheduler figures out where to schedule it, and it tells the Borglet to actually run the uh, the application. So it's uh, and then the Borglet will pull the application and start running it. So it's a pretty simple idea, uh, you, and it just does this ten thousand times uh, based on how many replicas you tell it to run. And so 
as a result of that, it, it schedules uh, our little application, say in this case we're running Hello World, uh, it schedules it throughout the data center and uh, runs 10,000 of our instances uh, on different machines. Uh, but we don't actually tell it which machines to run on. Uh, it figures it out, uh, figures out which machines have extra resources that can run uh, the application. And then it schedules it there. So we don't have to manage which uh, machines are actually running the application. So this is really helpful because we don't have to like spend a lot of time uh, worrying about uh, where things are running and what things are, uh, um, how to set up the, uh, the network and things like that. Okay, so that's how, how we kind of do it at Google, uh, but uh, I kind of want to step back and, and talk, so like what are containers and, and why are they beneficial and things like that. Uh, so, um, so just to, to give, to step back and talk about containers, uh, like containers are basically a way of, of packaging up applications uh, and all of the dependencies uh, together into one uh, file or one image basically. And so that's, uh, that image can be copied onto the machine and then be used to run the application. Um, so you don't actually have to do, install the dependencies on each server. Uh, so this is great because the, action, the, uh, the container or the application doesn't depend on what's actually installed on each machine. It carries all of its dependencies with it. So uh, you don't really care which machine you're actually running it on. So this is great because it makes means that uh, we don't have to be dependent on where we're actually running the application. We can run it on-premise or in our private uh, servers or on our uh, private cloud or public cloud environments. It doesn't really matter uh, where we're actually running it. Okay, so why, why would we actually use containers? So I'm, probably many of you have actually used VMs before, so virtual machines, uh, but uh, how do they compare to containers, or what, what's beneficial about containers um, compared to VMs? Uh, so one of the things that's really great about containers is that they're fast. Uh, when you start up a VM, you have to start up like the whole operating system, so like, it has to boot up and uh, start like a regular server, uh, but, via, but containers aren't just regular processes. They share the, uh, the kernel uh, with the running host, uh, so you don't actually have to start up a full machine uh, you can start up a, a new container in a few milliseconds. So it starts up just as fast as any other process running on the, on the machine. They're also portable, so I mentioned that all of the uh, dependencies come inside of the, are packaged inside of the image. Uh, so uh, they can be run in any, on any server, uh, and you don't really need to worry about uh, installing all the dependencies and making sure that they're there uh, on each server. And then last, they're efficient. So like when you start up uh, the, uh, a container, uh, each of them have a low overhead. They don't uh, have to start up a full uh, operating system like, the, uh, like a VM does. Uh, and a VM, because it uses the operating system or starts up an operating system, it actually has, the operating system has to use memory and CPU and resources. Um, but for containers, you don't need to do that. Uh, you're just running on the host machine, essentially. And because of that, uh, you can run many more uh, um, processes or many more containers on one single host than you can uh, on, a, on a regular VM. Um, and you can also specify resource limits just like you would a VM 
so you can pack more of them onto a single host server. So this can actually help you save a lot of money when you're, uh, when you're deploying apps. So uh, probably you have all uh, heard of Docker before at least. Um, so Docker is the mm. technology that people are probably most familiar with when talking about containers. It's the de facto standard for uh, containers. And um, Docker is great, uh, but it has some limitations. Uh, it's great for running containers on a single host machine, uh, but uh, when you want to deploy like kind of a, a web application or a, uh, a more uh, complex application, uh, you have to do things like deal with uh, multiple servers. Uh, but how do you deal with things like when, this, when your server fails or when a container fails? And how do you define what an actual container failure is? Uh, maybe your container will be running, but it's not actually serving requests, or it's not, it's kind of broken, it's not working, it's kind of like a zombie container. How do you manage uh, what a actual failure is? And how do you restart those applications? Um, and how do you update your applications without uh, having downtime? Uh, so if you want to update your application, you don't want to just uh, push your new version and then restart all of your servers all at once. Uh, because then your your users will uh, lose their connections or or won't actually be able to continue to use their service while you're updating. So Docker can help with this a little bit uh, using things like Docker Compose and Docker Swarm and stuff like that, but it's really just not good enough uh, to handle all of these type of issues. So that's one of the reasons why we built Kubernetes. Uh, Kubernetes is a um, uh, is a container distributed container manager uh, that uh, is modeled after uh, Borg. Uh, so internally, we've been using Borg for a long time, uh, but it's kind of an old system and it's uh, very kind of antiquated and it's not super easy to use. Uh, so, and it's also uh, very integrated into uh, how we run our data centers and things like that. And so it was just better for us to create a new open source that we could allow other people to use and uh, that would be much easier for other people to use and install. Uh, so, but uh, the overall architecture is kind of based on Borg and uh, on our experience running containers for the last 10 years. And we've also contributed the intellectual property for Kubernetes to the Cloud, Cloud Native Computing Foundation. Uh, so this means that Google, Google doesn't own Kubernetes. It's a, um, it's a uh, community-owned project. Uh, it means that many open source developers and companies can be free to build applications and extensions on top of Kubernetes without being locked in by Google and what Google wants. But uh, we don't open up, or we don't own Kubernetes, but uh, we are an active contributor to the ecosystem. Uh, so as part of that, we want, we want to make Google Cloud Platform the best place to run containers. Uh, so we've contained, created Container Engine, uh, which is a fully managed Kubernetes uh, service that you can run on, on Google Cloud Platform. Um, but we want to make it easy uh, by uh, offering Kubernetes into the open source project for you to move elsewhere if you really want to. Um, yeah. So we don't really want to keep you uh, locked in uh, we want to be able to allow you to freely choose your where you want to run. 
uh, but we want to work really hard to make our service uh, the, the best place to run uh, Kubernetes. So that's like kind of an idea of like what Kubernetes is, uh, but how, what is Kubernetes really like? Um, so uh, I explained a little bit about how Borg works, um, but uh, Kubernetes is very similar. Uh, Kubernetes has a master and a, and a scheduler. Uh, and uh, then it has uh, each node, worker node, where the containers are run. So this is very similar to the way that Borg runs. And then when we actually run an application or we run a container, uh, we uh, run it in what's called a pod. A, a pod is a, a set of containers that run together on the same machine. Uh, and um, they have uh, um, shared network and, and, uh, and resources uh, and things like um, volumes. Uh, so you can mount volumes uh, together uh, between the containers. And um, so they can also talk to each other on localhost using uh, with the same network interface. Uh, so that means that they essentially look like they're running on the same machine. Uh, but, and so they can talk to each other and work well together. Um, so this is something that uh, we use a lot at Google. Uh, so you can think about things like web servers and then maybe a log uh, service that your web server will send logs to the log service uh, that's running next to it. And that log service will send uh, the logs to uh, your log aggregator or something like that. So you can think of it like, like FluentD or uh, Logstash or something like that. So these types of applications work well together uh, locally. So now you've got all of these pods running on your, uh, your cluster. How do you actually differentiate between them? Uh, uh, like you might have front end and back end applications running. Uh, but uh, so you would do that by putting labels on each of them. So uh, any type of object. Uh, and so you can say, this, these are my front end pods and these are my back end pods. Uh, and that can, and you can use or to select the, uh, the appropriate pods. Um, you also have uh, uh, something called deployments. So I mentioned that Borg, can, you can tell it how many replicas to run or how many instances of an application to run. Uh, and you can do the same thing with Kubernetes. Uh, so deployments are a way of specifying that you have a, uh, a particular application and then how many replicas you want to actually run of that. And deployments will actually handle uh, uh, keeping all of those services, uh, those applications running. So say you have uh, an application front end and you want to run four replicas, uh, you can say uh, that you want to run four replicas and deployments will actually schedule all four of those and keep them running. One of them uh, crashes. Or, or dies, uh, then you can then it will restart the uh, that uh, that pod uh, and make sure that there's always four running. So that's really good for uh, for uh, like a self healing system or a system that that uh, uh, can can be highly available. And then this also allows you to really easily uh, scale up and down your application. So all you need to do is change your deployment. Uh, to say, hey, I want to have a, a single replica. Uh, and when you do that, the deployments will automatically uh, kill three of your pods uh, so that you're down to one single uh, single pod. And so that will actually make it so that it's really easy to 
kind of scale up and down, all you have to do is change the number of replicas, and Kubernetes will kind of figure out it. services. 
So services are things that allow you to say, okay, um, I want to create a backend service uh, on a particular port, um, and that uh, that backend service will collect uh, on a certain number of pods. So we might have our backend service here um, selecting on our, or uh, picking our backend pods, uh, and so when you actually connect to the service, uh, so this service will get actually create a DNS name and an IP address uh, for our service uh, that you can connect to uh, on the port that you specify, in this case, uh, 9000. And so when you connect to that service, it will actually send the uh, traffic to the back end. Um, so what happens is, it, say you have a front end service that wants to connect to your back end service, uh, you can connect on port 9000 to this backend service uh, name, um, and then that, that value or that, uh, that traffic will get load balanced to all of your backend services uh, automatically. Uh, so you don't really have to worry about uh, creating load balancers or things like that for, for internal services. Um, so that's, this makes it really, really easy to like make, uh, make services that can kind of talk to each other. And you can also make services that are, are uh, not just internal, but are available externally to, uh, to end users um, by using load balancers or things like that. Uh, so you can imagine like web applications or other things like that can be uh, exposed to end users via a, uh, via a service. So I'm going to talk, do a little bit of a demo uh, to kind of show you a little bit about like uh, how Kubernetes works and what it's like. And are we okay? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um. So. So for what I'm going to demo is kind of like a little um public like a little application. It's like a PHP uh, application with a uh, PHP front end and a Redis uh, back end. So. Uh, mm. So this Reddit is uh, just a, a database that's going to uh, hold some data. Um, this is kind of a guestbook service. Uh, so our PHP front end is actually going to, uh, when you write to a database, it's going to write to the uh, to Reddit to store our guestbook messages. And then I'm going to kind of demo like what that looks like um, from a Kubernetes point of view. So let me uh, change my screen sharing a little bit. And share my whole screen here. So what I'm going to do here is, uh, here's, I have my guestbook application. And in here, these are kind of like a little bit of an old way of, of describing uh, applications with Kubernetes uh, using what's called a replication controller. Uh, but you can kind of get the idea of what uh, um, the application is like or how you would specify these sort of things. Uh, so instead of something like a Borg configuration, uh, like I showed earlier, um, Kubernetes has configuration files uh, specified in YAML format. Uh, so YAML is hopefully a little bit easier to read or talk and, and write uh, than a board configuration. But here, what you basically do is you can say, like, here I have a replication controller. This is kind of like a deployment or a replica set. Um, and uh, 
you just say, okay, I want three replicas. So in this case, I'm telling you, saying that I want to have three uh, PHP frontends. Um, and then you specify uh, a, a template, which says, okay, this is the containers that I want to run in each, or this is the type of container that I want to actually run. So here is the, uh, the image that I'm going to use. This is a Docker image. And this is the name of the, uh, the container that I want to use. Um, and so, uh, and it also, you can specify the port that you're going to, to uh, run your service on. In this case, port 80, because it's just a regular web application. So here I'm going to create these three HP front ends. And then uh, I have the same sort of thing for uh, the Redis uh, backend service. Uh, so here I have a replication controller or a replica set for the, uh, the, the backend. So in this case, I'm specifying two, uh, two Redis slaves. Uh, so here uh, is the Redis slaves. And then I'll have like a single Redis master just one uh, replica for the Redis master. So here, uh, I should be able to, um, uh, should be able to create this um, using the Kubernetes control command. So the Kubernetes control command is the uh, how you can use to. Uh, is a, the command line utility that you can use to connect to Kubernetes and uh, interact with the API uh, to get information about like how many uh, pods are running or how, what sort of replication controllers or deployments you have and things like that. And you can also use it to create new deployments or create a, a new applications. So here I'm going to create my front end controller. And now if I say uh, get RC, for replication controller. Um, I should be able to see that my front end replication controller is running. And if I say get pods, I can see that it's running three and it's actually starting to trying to create the containers. And then you can also do things like get events or uh, which will tell you what the internally, uh, what uh, Kubernetes is doing. So this is kind of like the Kubernetes logs uh, so you can kind of see that it's uh, creating a, it's successfully created the containers, um, but I don't think that they're actually running yet. It's actually pulling the, uh, the container uh, images right now. So I can say like, say watch here, and this will actually watch the, uh, um, the log files uh, as, as things are happening, and it'll, it'll update and, and kind of tail the logs here. So this will show, this shows that I've actually uh, pulled the image and that it's actually uh, started uh, my containers. So hopefully if I go back to running get pods, I should see that all of my containers are running. So that's good. Um, I've got that. And let's see, going back, let me just go ahead and create all of these things. So front end, uh, this is my front end service that I can use to connect to my front end. the front service already exists because I created it earlier. Um, in my Redis master, uh, in my Redis sleeve, 
service as well as the controller. I need to create the Redis uh, master service as well. Okay, so now I've created all of the, uh, the things that I needed to. So the front end controller, the front end service, the master controller, and the master service, as well as the slave controller and the slave service. Uh, so I've created each of these. So the front end service, then the, front, the controller for the three front ends, the slave service, and the controller for the three slaves. Uh, or for the two slaves, and then the master service and the controller for the master. So that's uh, six, one, two, three, four, five, six. Uh, and so now if I say get pods, I should see some pods starting up or starting. Uh, so I can see the three front ends that I've got here. Uh, I can see the Redis master. Let me actually make this a little bit smaller here. Oops. Um, I can see the uh, the the Redis master, the single Redis master, and I can see the the, uh, the two slaves here that are running. And if I say true control get service, uh, it will show me. Uh, this is a little bit off looking, but uh, you can see the front end uh, service, the Redis master service, and the Redis slave service. There's also a Kubernetes service here uh, that's. You can use uh, internally to talk to the Kubernetes API, but we can kind of ignore that for now. Uh, so we've got these three services created. Um, so now that this is actually uh, up and running, and this is this front end service is uh, has what's called a load balancer uh, associated with it. So we have, we can if you run this on something like uh, Container Engine, you can get uh, you can easily create. Uh, load balancers. My front-end service, if you look at it, it has this uh, type load balancer, uh, which makes this uh, particular service into a load balancer that I can access from outside of the, of the cluster. So if I go here, I go to the address, I should see my guestbook application, and I can say, hello, or, or and it will actually submit that back to my application. If I reload this, I should still see it. Okay. All right. So that's, that's great. Um, so now my application is actually running Kubernetes. Uh, let's actually kind of visualize this and look at uh, what it is. So like here I've got a little visualizer application. So if I say, um, look at Google Hosts. So here's like a little visualizer application, which can kind of help visualize like what's going on. So here I have my three front ends uh, um, pods, um, and this kind of updates in real time, so you can kind of see what's going on. Uh, so I have my three front end pods and the front end service. Uh, so that's the front end replication controller and the front end uh, pods, and then a front end uh, service. And here's my master, my single master, and my two Redis slaves. And so I mentioned that uh, Kubernetes will always keep the number of replicas running. Uh, so what happens if I actually just uh, delete one of these? So let's go in here and uh, find what the name of this pod, these pods are, and say we have this pod here. We just go delete pod, 
Let me just go, okay, deleted. We'll see that, like, it's actually really, really fast. Like, it, uh, it was actually way too fast to actually really uh, demo it really well. But if you saw it, like, it kind of turned yellow for a second there. Um, and actually what happened is that Kubernetes immediately recognized that there was, like, not enough uh, servers running. And so it started up a new one. So this is actually a different name. If you look at this, is like BYQ9. Uh, so the one that we killed was C E C three E U E W U E W. Sorry. Uh, so this is the one that we killed uh, or we deleted, and then this is the one that actually got started up. So if we look at get pause again, we'll actually see that we have a completely new uh, front end. Actually, this is completely different. Numbers. There are like IDs here. Not sure why that is, but uh, but yeah. So we'll notice that like here we have the old ones, uh, but we have a completely new one uh, here. So that the um, what the replication controller or the the deployments would actually do is make sure that you always have the right number running. Mm. Um, so you can also do things like uh, you can. Uh, okay, so we can, um, you can actually always make sure that you have the exact right number running. Um, so I'm almost done, but the last thing I want to do is, so my, my, uh, my cluster here is running in uh, Google Cloud, um, and I've got three uh, instances here. This is a little bit small, so you might not be able to see it. Uh, whoa. Look at that, it's a little bit chipping. So you can see that I have three instances of my cluster running. These are actual servers uh, running in Google Cloud. Um, but one of the things I can do here is really easily is just uh, straight up delete uh, one of these nodes and see what happens. So I'm sure some of the uh, application is actually running on these, uh, these nodes, or this node. Uh, but I'm just going to delete it and see what happens. Um, so basically, like, uh, container Engine will always keep the right number of nodes running, so it'll restart this node. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, Kubernetes will actually kind of uh, be able to recognize that a node is, is kind of down um, and be able to kind of act accordingly. So in this case, it's going to kind of, it's probably going to wait for about 30 seconds or, or something like, about 30 seconds, I think, uh, until it actually determines that a node is down uh, and then starts moving around the uh, the pods. So here it's realized that um, some of the pods are not there, and so it started up a new one. Uh, so if we do get pods again, you can see that one of our pods that was uh, running before, um, it looks like it was this I, ISB14, uh, was actually running on the node that we destroyed or we, we deleted. And so uh, Kubernetes actually started up a new one to make sure that it's uh, always running the right. Uh, application or the right number. So that's good. Like if we go here and we run our guestbook app, we can still see that it's running, mm. even though we've kind of uh, deleted a node and it's still uh, kind of still starting up a new one. If I reload this and see uh, see what's going on, 
Okay, so it's actually started up and, and created a new, uh, new, um, node for me. So if I go, you can also do things like get nodes here, which will tell you uh, the nodes that are currently recognized by Kubernetes. So here I have three nodes running, but Kubernetes still only sees two because uh, one is still starting up. Uh, so if I do this again for a few few minutes, like I should notice a new uh, node starting up. But right now Kubernetes only sees new two nodes, and it can actually only use two nodes. So what it did was it recognized that one of the nodes was deleted. And then it moved around the pods that were uh, originally running on that node uh, to one of the nodes where it could continue to run uh, in order to make the application continue to keep running. Uh, so that's one way to actually have a much more highly available application. You can continue to use this. So like, I'm still working. And, uh, and everything is still kind of going going according to plan. Obviously, you can't uh, you know, delete all of the nodes and still have your application working, uh, but at least some of the nodes can still fail, and your application will still be able to uh, to handle that sort of uh, those type of failures. So I hope that was that was helpful and like it was uh, that was informative. Um, so and with that, I'd like to uh, to end my demo and uh, and. Uh, Maybe open it up to, to some questions or, or something like that, or if you have any. Do we have actually have time for questions? Okay, that'd be great. All right, any questions, guys? <coughs> Is there any question that you want to ask? All right. Uh, can you repeat the question? How does uh, Kubernetes compare to Docker Swarm? What's, what's the advantage of uh, Kubernetes? Okay. Um, so let me stop screen sharing. Uh, so one of the, uh, the the things that Kubernetes does a lot better than Docker Swarm is that kind of uh, the stuff that I that I just talked about, like like if your node goes down uh, or your your uh, your container is like uh, crashes or stuff like that, um, Kubernetes will do like a, a lot better job of being able to uh, move those containers around to another uh, machine so they continue can continue to run uh, and. Uh, continue to be highly available. Uh, so uh, Docker Swarm can do that, uh, but uh, to some degree, but it's not uh, the kind of uh, as robust of a system as Kubernetes is. Also, Kubernetes has a, uh, has a um, the concept of a health check uh, and a readiness check. So these are actually called liveliness checks and readiness checks. Mm -hmm. uh, so these are things that actually Kubernetes can connect to your app uh, like kind of if it's a web app, it can connect to it on HTTP and keep con and continually check to make sure it's still running uh, or that it's available. Uh, so say you start up your new application, but your database isn't started up yet. Your database is still starting up. Hmm. But your application needs to use your database. 
Kubernetes can actually check your app. Uh, your app can provide a, a readiness check that says, okay, I can't connect to the database yet. I'm not ready. Uh, so you can tell Kubernetes that your, your application is not ready yet, and Kubernetes will actually uh, not send traffic uh, on the service to your application uh, that particular instance until it's ready. Uh, so that makes it so that uh, you don't have to um, worry about the order in which things come up in your uh, in your cluster as well. So that's like one of the thing, the really nice things about Kubernetes that that's not really part of Docker Swarm. Um, obviously, like service things like service uh, services and service discovery is also built into Kubernetes, so it's uh, very easy to get that working and up and running as well. Does that answer your question?
I don't know how it works, so I just do whatever. All my codes are on GitHub. So um, if you guys need to access the material, just <coughs> go to Google and then search um, GitHub Docker birthday number three. <coughs> or you can just go github.com slash docker slash docker dash birthday dash three. Can, can you see it? Do I need to read uh, it? No. Yeah. And here are all the materials you need for um, for our lab today. Oh, good. Yeah, so... I didn't attend the other one. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. It, it, actually this is the same material that... Because uh, I'm an organizer for Docker, uh, Docker user group in KL as well. So this is the same lab that I had last month, I guess. Mm. No, this month, early this month. Yeah. So... Head on to there. So what we're going to do is... Um, there, there will be slides that you can use. Um, I'm not going to cover them because half of the slide will be explaining and introducing all the Docker products. And I'm not here, I'm not a salesperson, so I will skip that. Um, do you guys need explanation on what is Docker and how Docker works? Like, anyone, does anyone not know or know how Docker works? Like. What's the difference between... Do you guys need ex explanation on that? Alright, cool. Alright, I guess I'll, I'll jump into the slides anyhow. Okay, um, just ignore the, the picture there, because um, this is team after uh, Docker's third birthday last month. Alright, so I'm going to skip this. I'm going to start with introduction to Docker. Um, so Docker started off actually not as a product, it was more of an internal tool that um, the company before Docker used. So, let's see, all these can skip, skip, skip. So started in 2013, um, the company needed a, 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 a tool for them to run um, VMs on Linux and then they, they, they can distribute. They, they, they were actually a platform company, uh, sort of a platform provider company, if you get what I mean. And then they, they decided that using VM is too heavy, so they, they came up with their own um, framework based on um, Linux container, which is LXC back then. So eventually they found out that, hey, this is a really great tool. Instead of just selling platform as a service, why not we sell this tool that uses containerization as a product? So here are some basic things that I can tell you about Docker first, um, since not all of you have used Docker before. So in Docker, you, there are some terminologies you have to remember. So something similar to VM, you have um, something we call Docker image. It's the same as your um, VM image. It's your your base for everything. So you can use the same image and then you can spin up multiple instances just like how you can do in VM. And then you have container. Container is the runtime, um, an instance of your image, if you, if you understand what I mean. Like it's a running instance of your image. So we call it container. And then you have Docker engine. Docker engine is the service that allows you to do all these things. It usually it runs as a daemon, 
and then you have something called a registry. A registry is like, um, yeah, it's a registry. It's a repository. Imagine it's a repository. Not exactly. A place where you can store multiple repositories. So it's a place where you store all your images. Okay. And yeah, that's the basics. So um, why why I'm gonna explain a bit why Docker is gaining a lot more traction nowadays. So back back then, I mean, like five or ten years ago, applications are usually deployed in one or a few servers only. Typically, the server is a very powerful server that, and then you keep all the binaries running on that machine. But nowadays, uh, there's a paradigm shift where we move from monolithic applications to microservices. Uh, if you guys are developers, I'm sure you guys are using microservices nowadays. So services are now decoupled. They are not monolithic anymore. So we, we need to have um, this thing called uh, you need high availability, you need, um, you need it to be agile enough for you to update it every day because not every day, like often enough because your market needs are changing every day and you need high availability and then what else? You yeah, and then you need to be able to do the same thing on multiple environments, you can, let's say Back then, when, when people are developers are coding um, an application, they always have this problem when they 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 would um, code develop something that works well within the development environment, and then when they move to staging or they move to production, and hey, it breaks. Usually, they are maybe it's small things like uh, oh, it's a different GCC version, uh, maybe it's the wrong Java version, or maybe the environment variables are different. So these are all sort of like a dependency hell for developers and uh, system admins. So Docker sort of serves as a solution for this. So using Docker, because Docker is, Docker images are immutable and every Docker image they have, they are packaged with all the, when, when you write a Docker image, you have all the binaries and all the dependencies already stored inside that image. So it doesn't matter where you run it. You can run it on um, on a Red Hat server. You can run it on Ubuntu. It will still run the same as long as you have Docker installed. So yeah. So I'm gonna skip this. And then yeah. So containers, like I said, they package up your binaries and all your dependencies, and then they isolate software from each other. Well, what what does it mean by isolating software? So you it you might have an application with multiple services, right? So maybe different services would require different dependencies. Back then, the only way to do it is oh, okay, for this service you run it on server A. For that service that is incompatible with the binaries on A, you have to run it on B with its own dependencies. But with images, you can run service A on image A and then service B on image B on the same server, if you get what I mean. Because the dependencies are all contained within their own images. And then container is a standard format, so you can move it anywhere. Like, it's really small. Like, a Ubuntu's image, I think it's like, what, 200 meg, I think? 
And if you use Alpine, it's even smaller. I think it's 60 meg or something. So the, 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 the fact that it's a very small and um, portable, so it makes it a good tool for you to use and develop across environments and you can deploy it really quickly across um, platforms. Let's say you want to deploy on AWS, it, it's really fast or it's small. But if you're using VM, then it's slow and relatively slow. It will take maybe hours. And then, of course, then um, Docker as a company, we built a whole ecosystem of tools um, beyond the Docker engine itself to help um, developers' life much easier. So, yeah, so Docker to the rescue for developers. So, This, you guys can read this. So, the thing about Docker that appeals the most um, is to the developers crowd because now you can, like I mentioned just now, you can build your your your, your software once and, it, and then you can run it everywhere knowing that you will run the same regardless of where you run it. So, it's a clean and safe, hygienic, portable runtime environment for your application. There's no more worries about missing dependencies, packages, or pain points during subsequent deployments. And then you can run each application on its own isolated. I, I think the word application should be service. So you can run each service in its own isolated container. And then it, you don't have to worry that it won't work with on, on different, different machines. And of course, with images, before you even roll, you even um, build the image, you can do many testing within your application and then make sure that it works before you ship the image out. So, yeah, so it's it's really no-brainer for developers to move from, say, using Vagrant or VM to start developing on Docker because it's it's really really fast and and you will find out soon enough yeah. when we start doing the demo. So yeah, so our friend back there, I, have you used VM? You, you have been using VM? So you want to know what's the difference between you, VM and Docker? So, Do no, you? I think I, I know what it is now. Okay, you know what is it. So um, any any ops people here? SysOps? Okay, cool. Uh, have, you, have you tried Docker before? How, how do you manage your, your service nowadays? Like how do you do uh, co configuration management? Do you use Papa and Chef? Uh, a bit of Ansible. Ah, Docker cool is still yeah, sort of uh, on the trial phase. Or okay, cool. Um, I think the general idea is that um, developers love Docker while sys, sys admins, they would detest um, Docker because it gives the control away to the developers. But now, nowadays, a lot of tech companies are embracing the ideology of uh, DevOps, so we see a convergence of ops and devs. So, yeah, so uh, Docker is. Uh, yeah? How, how do you handle legacy type of applications to be placed into Docker? Can you give me an example? Uh, you know, let's say something that's not written to be stateless and
um, you can you can link your containers to talk to different containers. Let's say you have container A running an application, but it needs a DB, and then you have container B, or you don't even have to put your DB on container, because it's sort of not a good idea to put DB on container if you have high high I/O. So maybe you have a, a dedicated DB, a bare metal DB. So you can specify within your application where does it need to connect to your DB, what's the endpoint, what's the password and credential. You set it up, then you will talk to it. So it's all up to um, developers to adapt and transport the application, package it in a way that it it can be done within a container. And it's really not that hard, as I will, I will show you guys later. So yeah. So next, uh, so yeah, this is the difference between um, container and VM. There is one caveat here in the sense that um, when you run Docker containers on one machine, multiple containers on the machine, you have to take note that they all are leveraging on the same host kernel. Meaning that whatever you have only one host and you're running 10 containers, they are all you sharing the, the kernel of your host. So if your application, let's say you have 10 containers with 10 services, maybe one of the, 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 the service requires a newer version of the kernel, then it wouldn't work if your host has an older version of the kernel. So that is one of the limitations of using Docker, but uh, soon there will be unique kernel, but you guys are not there yet, so let's just assume that that's how it is now. Yeah, and yep, so you you avoid the, the bulky part of having a whole stack of um, the kernel and all the binaries. So that's why um, Docker images are really lightweight because you only have whatever additional um, binaries and your application code inside the images. The rest, they all leverage on your uh, underlying host kernel. So since I've been mentioning kernel, uh, just take note that right now Docker only works with uh, Linux. For Mac, it's still in beta, you can try out, because Mac is essentially Unix-based, so they still share a major DNA, uh, most of the DNA of Linux. Whereas for Windows, it's a totally different story, uh, you have uh, your DLL, you have your all, all the Windows stuff. So to run Docker on Windows, you need, still need a, a VM or a instance of Linux running on it. It can be it can be running on Hyper-V or uh, VMware or whatever virtualization technology you want to use. But for now, you have to use Linux. In in the not so distant future, there will be support for Windows servers. Um, mm -hmm. I think Malaysia enterprise, big enterprise, still a lot of them are using Windows. So there is this opportunity for Docker to, to do this. And then they, are, they have been collaborating with Microsoft. So soon you will see Docker engine for, for Windows. But the, the, the biggest problem still lies that a lot of the images out there that people have written or organizations have provided, they are all for Linux. They are not for Windows. So Windows is EXE. On Linux, it's just your direct binary. You can just run it. So it's totally different. So I'm not sure how they, they would handle it in the future, because you were definitely not able 
to be able to run um, Linux-based application on Windows servers, unless you use VM. So, yeah, so three years down the road, so now Docker uh, is a container as a service. So, you guys installed Toolbox, right? Yes. So, Toolbox, it's actually, uh, it has multiple tools. It has the Docker engine itself. <gasps> which is running in a VM, so it installs VirtualBox on your machine, and then it installs a, a Mobi Linux, which is a flavor that Docker created, uh, and then it has Docker Engine installed on it, and then you have Docker Compose, you have Docker, no, I think Docker Machine is into, and then you have a fancy GUI, but no one uses GUI anyway, and then, in the middle, you have all these tools. These are all the products that Docker has been make, making um, since day one. They are, I, I will cover all the different products in a minute, but it's not really um, a necessity to learn all these other services or other tools in order to use Docker. Those are just to help more advanced users to, to um, automate and try to make their life easier. But for the for the purpose of our lab today, we'll cover something very fundamental. <coughs> so, right, so container as a service, as I mentioned, you build and then you ship and then you run. That's the motto of Docker, build, ship, run. Uh, there are two, two separate solutions on top of all the open source products. Um, Docker actually has uh, a few other paid products. <coughs> One is called Docker Data Center where you can run your your Docker, the whole solution, Docker solution on-prem or on your private cloud. And then there's Docker Cloud which is like a free service but you can pay to get more say free repo, uh, private repo allocations or uh, more automated build queues. I'll, I'll explain it to you guys later. So yeah, and then um, it helps enable, yeah, this is all just uh, corporate propaganda. Uh, yeah, so, right, so we will skip right to Docker app training, right. So toolbox includes Kitematic, <coughs> Docker CLI, Docker Machine, Docker Swarm, and Docker Compose. So, Docker CLI is essentially your Docker engine. Um, and then you have Docker Machine, which is to help you spin up instance of VMs. It's sort of like Vagrant. Uh, I'm sure most of you have used Vagrant before. It's sort of like Vagrant. And then Docker Swarm is for orchestration of containers. So maybe some of you have attended the morning session on Kubernetes. The, the, the main difference of Swarm and Kubernetes is that we Swarm doesn't do node management. We don't do resource management. We only do container or image management, if you get what I mean. So we don't do orchestration for your hosts, how many hosts. You have to add them in manually. But they do orchestration for your services or your containers. Like you specify how many, how many containers you want to run for service A or B. If, if something happened to it, you will know how to spin up, spin down, uh, required containers. And then Docker Compose is just for you to uh, build a stack of application. 
Um, we'll come to that later too in today's lab. So this is the ultimate goal of our today's code lab. We will try to build an app where it's a basic web app with um, you have your Python-based uh, web app, and then you have your Redis as a cache, and you have a Java worker that pulls from the Redis queue, and then it will store it into a Postgres database. And then you have your result app, which is another uh, JavaScript app that will pull the result from your database. It's really straightforward. So it's like one component is your your voting part, and then the other component is your result part. So, but before we start doing on this lab, uh, I will go through some basic um, tutorial on how to use Docker engine. So. As you can see, the material is publicly accessible at GitHub. So it's GitHub slash Docker slash Docker Birthday Tree. Yeah, so we will proceed then. So, right. We're going to skip all this because we're going to start with something more fundamental. So, right. Pre tutorial preparation. Right. Tutorial. So if you if you go to um, sorry, if if you are at this GitHub page, there is this um, tutorial.fd. So it's a markdown for the tutorial session. So we're gonna start with a very simple tutorial. Um, those who have used Docker before, you find this very fundamental. But I'm just gonna cover just to be fair to the rest of the the whole. Alright. So everyone installed have you installed your Docker? Yeah. Cool. So um after you install Docker Toolbox, maybe Mac or Windows, you should have this thing called the it should be called Docker Quick Start Terminal. Right. Yeah, so just run it. Um, I, you guys can look at the, the, the tutorial. So when you start the terminal, what essentially it does is it will check if your default Docker, um, boot to Docker VM has been started. If it's not, it will start it and then it will SSH into the VM, that's it. Hey, no, it doesn't SSH into the VM. Yeah, but it, but it will connect your Docker um, 
your Docker CLI on Windows or Mac, it will connect to the Docker engine inside the VM. <coughs> oh, to, 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 to make things more clear, um, Docker engine has two components. One is the Docker client, one is the Docker server, or we call it Docker daemon. So the CLI can, can be on any platform, but the engine itself, the daemon itself, must be on Linux. So let's say you have come to this page and then you type Docker version. So you should see that the client is version and API is Go API 1.5.4, blah, blah, blah. But you can see that the client is built for the Windows architecture. Whereas for the server, it's built for Linux. So, in other words, your CLI is running natively on your machine, but the daemon or the server itself is running on a VM in Linux. So if you do a Docker, sorry, yeah, Docker machine LS, you should see that there's a default container, I mean, default VM running, and it's called, uh, yeah, it's not there. But anyhow, it's running on, running on something we call uh, Mobi Linux. Anyone not seeing both client and server? I'll take it as a no. So now, if you look at the tutorial, the first message, first command to run will be docker run hello world. So this, when you when you do docker run hello world, it it, it actually do this. It will say hello. This is just to prove that your Docker engine works. So what exactly does Docker Run do or Docker... What, what, what is Hello World? What is Docker Run? So the, con the, the syntax of running the, uh, Docker command is very simple. You start with Docker, and then the second... Um, yeah, the, the second part of the command is you can do... You can pull your image, you can push your image, you can run your image, you can start your container or stop your containers. You can list whatever container is running. So in this case, we run. And then what do we run? You need to specify what image to run. And then you tell it it's hello world. In my case, I have already have that image on my machine, so it doesn't download. But for you guys, you should see something like um, download pulling image. And then it would show that it would show the message eventually. So once you've done this, and then you do you do Docker images. This will list all the image that is on your machine. Image as in sort of like VMISO. So you can see mine has a bit more, but you can see that it has Hello World here. And Hello World is just 967 bytes. 
that's how big that that application is. And it, it's not exactly an application, it's just a very um, low level image that just echoes that, that message that you've seen earlier. The, the main intention of Hello World is just to show your installation was okay. Yeah, as it, as it explains here, I mean, down there also, uh, it, it says that it has installed correctly. So now um, we can do a lot more things. Um, you can do, so just now I mentioned that you can manually pull your, your images from, from the internet. When I say internet, it's actually from default Docker Hub. It's a repository service provided by Docker. So if you don't have that image, it will automatically download and then it will, if you do run, it will just download and run. But you can manually try and um, download as well. As you can see here, if you do Docker, pull, let's say on pull Ubuntu, it will just pull like that. But then again, you have to, you'll be wondering, how do I know what images are out there? So there are two ways you can um, go about doing this. You can either go to Docker Hub, which is hub.docker.com. I'll just demo here. If you go to hub.docker.com, and then, unfortunately, you will need to create an account before you can use the service. I have an account. So you can search whatever you want. Let's say I want to search for MySQL container uh, image. So you can just type MySQL up there in the search bar, and then you can search, and then you can have all these images that you can use. And then there are certain mm. images that are tagged official means that they are actually created either by Docker or by the um, application company itself. In this case, MySQL. <coughs> Oracle is the one that's maintaining this image. So another way that you can do, which is sort of more method that I prefer is you can do docker search. You can do docker search MySQL and then it will basically do the same thing as this but in the CLI and then it will show you the list of images that has been found with the name MySQL. And then followed by that you can just docker pull MySQL. Right. Okay, so if you look into the tutorial material, there are some other images that you can pull. So you can pull Hello World, Alpine, and then Segments, Static Site. And then there are a lot more other images as well. Um, while, while, while I continue with the lab, I mean with this demo, just pull it in the background while I, you're listening to me. Because I don't think the internet here is really fast, so it might take a while. Right. So you, you don't have to like type whole one message and then wait. You can just copy the whole thing and then just paste and then the, the, the CLI would would run the subsequent pulls once the first one or the, the before the one before it has completed. So yeah. So now we're gonna do this um, very simple thing.
So we have done um, back to the uh, tutorial MD. Um, so once you have done uh, Hello World, we will start playing with Alpine. Alpine is just another flavor of the Linux distribution. Um, it's gaining traction lately because it's really, really lightweight. It's really small because it's sort of like a minimal kind of distribution compared to Ubuntu where you have all the tools bundled in. Mm. So Alpine is a great candidate to be used for Docker-based image. So since Alpine is really small, it's like what? Oh, sorry, it's like one meg. So I think everyone should have finished pulling it. Mm. So while 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 the the pulling for other images are running at the background, um, you can either start another session of terminal. <coughs> okay. In case you want to run it again, you can just start another another terminal and then continue with our lab. So I assume you guys are developers, so you guys have used um, Linux before, right? So I'm not going to explain what, what what all this is. So let's say I do a Docker run Alpine ls l. So what this does is just very simple. You you run this Alpine as a container, and then you tell it what command to run. So ls-l is just listing the uh, the default directory when you log into that container or in this case, Alpine uh, Linux. So you will just list it and then it will terminate the, the container. Meaning that the container session is not sustained. It will just start and then list the file inside the container and then exit. That's it. So, as, sorry? Anyone see it? Okay, cool. Um, so as you can see, on, on my, what, 10 year old laptop, I just do a something like this, and it would it would spin up the container. It would print that that output, and then it would terminate within like what one second. So it's you, you try doing that with a VM, and then see how long it takes to boot up, and then load into the <coughs> load all the 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 demons, and then log in, and then you list all your file. It's gonna take a while, but on containers it takes seconds. Of course, it's not a full full blown OS, but for application, that's all you need. So, how do I know this is not running? So, for those who are familiar with um, Mac or Linux, you know the command ps. You can do Docker ps, and then you can see if there are any running containers. So, in this case, you see there are no running containers, meaning that the the the, the when I did run. It started and once it has printed the output of ls, it exited. So how do I know that? You can do docker ps dash a, which means option for all, and it will show you all containers on your machine. In this case, um, container Alpine, uh, I mean the image Alpine was created a minute ago and then it exited. So dash A shows you regardless if it's uh, active container or if it's a stop container. It 
will show you all the containers on your machine. Mm. So this is how you can look at your um, containers. And you can do a lot more things like um, in this demo it says uh, you can docker run alpine echo and then whatever message you want it to echo. You can do uptime. So for the sysadmin back there, um, when you do uptime, you'll notice something very funny. The uptime is very long. It's not seconds. Why? The reason is that, remember when I said um, when you run your, your containers, you're all leveraging your base kernel, your, the host kernel. Since you're running on VM, the, what kernel does it refer to? The VM kernel, the VMware kernel, uh, sorry, the VirtualBox kernel that, that you have here, which is a Docker machine LS. So in our case, it's this one. So it will show the uptime of that machine. It's not of that container. Hmm. And then you can do other things. You can do um, Docker run Alpine uh, bin slash bin slash sh. So if you do that, it would actually you for a brief second you are connected to the shell. But then since you didn't tell it what to do after it connects to the shell, it would exit. So there's another option when you're doing run that allows you to maintain an interactive TTY session with a container, mm. assuming that it has the shell that you want to run on. So in this case, SH, the basic shell is in Alpine. So if you do a, an include the option that ITB, oh sorry, IT is fine. If you do docker run dash IT, the I option is for uh, interactive To, to let it to be interactive with your, let's say you have whatever input you have, and then T is for to create a pseudo TTY session. So if you do this, you are in a separate shell, I mean a, a separate uh, prompt, command prompt. So in this case, you are actually inside the container. And then now I can do whatever I want. I can check who am I, I can check uh, which working that out. I can check ls-l and you are inside the container and if you do exit or control c control d to, to terminate the session the container would be stopped understood so this is just to showcase um, how you can connect to a running uh, <coughs> connect to the shell terminal of a running container so here in the in the slides, it's actually explaining why when you do without the dash IP option, why it doesn't work. Yeah, and then this is just teaching you how to list all your your containers. Yeah. So yep, and then it would it would explain something like. You can try RMRF in container, you won't, you won't impact your machine. But be careful uh, when you're running, whenever you're running RMRF, just make <coughs> yeah. sure you are really in the container. And then, yeah, so these are the technology. We already established this, I'm, I'm going to skip. So, so, so far, any questions about Docker, images, containers? 
anyone. Uh, when you save the file in there, when you terminate the containers and you run it again, will the files disappear? Let's say I'm saving my database files. Okay, so our friend back there is asking that let's say if you start a container and then you exit, <coughs> so what happens to whatever file is inside? So there's two things that, that you can, there are a few ways you can handle that. So first thing is, remember when we, so I'll do control D now, uh, so you will just exit. So now if you do docker ps, there's nothing there anymore. So means that the container has been stopped. The file is still intact. So what you can do is, you can either start the container again by doing, say, let's say I do Docker PS, sorry, PS-A, so the last one exited was this um, trusting bell, the name is trusting bell, but I just go by the container ID. Start trusting bell and then I can make it uh, Yeah, in this case the container because we never specified what to do when you start the container it will just exit. But if you're running a database uh, container, they have this thing called the, uh, what do you call that? The command. When you build an image, you can specify what it does when it starts. So if you have that, when you you, you stop your, your container, you, when you start it back, you will run back that process again, <laughs> if you get what I mean. Mm. So in this case, we are unable to do it again. But there's another way you can keep your containers alive. When you do a docker run, dash it, right? You do d. D means detach. It runs at the background. So if you do this, and then you do docker ps again, you can see that it's actually, oh, it actually ran. My alpine custom valve is up again when I do docker start. So to, to, to continue what you said, so let's say now I want to go back into that. Um, that container, I will docker exec. Docker exec is just executing command. I can do this. Docker PS, it has stopped. Oh, it has to be named, sorry. <coughs> well, 
So it stopped, and then you see that one has been stopped. But I can start it up back again, and then I do a LS. And then you do. So you list back again, and start up again, and then you do exact. This time instead of bin shell, you do LS dash LA. You can see that test is still there. Mm. So it, it actually, all these things, they are stored in your machine. It depends where you install your Docker binary. So if you use, by default, the, the Docker files are all installed at slash var, slash lib, slash docker. Inside, if you go in, there's slash container, and then there will be some container ID name, and then all the files, whatever is in this container, is inside that directory. So as long as you don't go go actively let's say now it's running like docker ps and then i do docker stop uh, my trusty out trusting bell again so now it's the file is still there but it's not running it's just not running you can you can restart it anytime but there are times where you want to fully remove it and then i'll, I'll just go on with the command to do it so you can do it with docker rm before I do that, let me do this again. <coughs> Docker PS dash A, and then I try to grab trusting bell. As you can see, there's one that I just man man manually stop. But if you do a Docker RM, which is you remove whatever container um, files that are remaining for that that container, and then you do again, you Docker PS dash A is no longer there. So meaning that container has been deleted. It's no longer available. <coughs> so this is for container. So as I mentioned, a container is an, an is an instance, a running instance of an image. So we have I've just demonstrated how you can remove your container. What about your image? How do I remove my image? Let's say that image I no longer use it, it's using up 200 meg of my storage and I don't like it. So there's another command, it's called RMI. So RMI obviously is just RM image. And then what, what you do is, before we do that, Docker, Docker images. So you can see I have um, eight images. Let's say I want to remove um, hello world, I don't like it anymore. So you do it, Docker RMI, and then you just type hello world. Ah. So I can't remove, why? Because it says that I'm unable to remove reference because there is some container is referencing that image. So it's smart enough to tell you that you cannot do that because I ran this image earlier as a container. So what you have to do is just docker ps-a and then you grab hello world to get the ID. It's called snippy bell. Now I do a docker rm snippy bell. And then, by now, I should be able to do a RMI on Hello World. And it, it would untag, untag it from my machine and then it would delete that file. So, typically I never encountered issues with this or I heard customer complaining about this because usually images are really small and storage is really cheap now. But some production, I don't know, there are some people that, some customers where they like to keep yeah, keep doing housekeeping on images in their machine. So 
take note that you have always have to remove the containers from your machine. There's another way you can do um, Docker RMI and then dash F, it will force remove the image, but that's not recommended right? because you will leave your container language there. Alright, so this is, um, these are all the very basic commands on when you use Docker. So the next thing we do is we do something more, something more fundamental, uh, something more practical, something that you can see. Because all we have been doing is just starting up um, empty, um, very basic containers. So now I'm gonna spin up a uh, web web container, and this web container is nothing fancy. It's just something that it includes HTTPD and then it has some static HTTP, HTML files in it and then it will show when you when you run the container and then you go to your local host certain ports you can see that hey you already started a web service with some files in it so as as I mentioned earlier this is one of the images you have pulled so it's it's actually written by someone from Docker so it's sequence slash static site so you will notice the notation is a bit different this time where it has a slash here so in docker hub or in the docker world it's sort of like github I'm sure you guys have used git before so this part is actually your repo name and then this part is your uh, image name sorry this is not repo name this is your namespace and then this is your your repo name. Just imagine this is your company or your your project, your your name your namespace, and then this would be your project or your application. So in this case, this user he created this image called static site. So what we do is we will do Docker run sequence slash static site. So it will take a while because this one has a bit more components to, to, to deal with, but it should be relatively fast. So once you have run it right, you, you will see it just hung there, it won't stop because I didn't run it in detached mode, meaning that if I cancel now, then the service will be stopped. But if you do a docker run dash D, then it will run the background, uh, you will continue to be able to use this. So let's go back to I'll use my separate terminal uh, here. So if I do a Docker PS here, you can see that it's up already. Do you see that? Mm. Yeah. But it's up, but how do I see my web app, my, my website, the website that I just started? So you you are unable to see it because we never expose the port on that container to our machine. We never map it, meaning that it's only running on port 80 and port 443, if you can see on your machine, if you do Docker PS. It's running on the HT, normal, um, your HTTP port and your HTTPS port. But you didn't tell it, this is on the container. You didn't tell it on your machine itself what port to be published. So you cannot access it. So what you have to do now, is very simple. So you can copy the, um, actually you don't even have to copy this. You can just do a Docker. 
if you run the, the next command, now you, you should see that this command here is, is slightly different from what we've been doing in the sense that you add more options. So dash dash name is, it allows you to specify the name of your container. If you don't specify the name of the container, it will randomly generate a name, a container name for your container. Usually the, the <coughs> format would be a adjective underscore some person's name. So, but let's say we do this. Oh, sorry. You don't don't copy the uh, the, the bottom line. I just copy the first line. The bottom line is your the container ID that is running. So in my case, the container ID is two eight two. PS, it's running. So here, if you do this, you will specify which port. Do you see here? Mm. It's different now. It says your this is zero dot zero dot zero. It's just your local host. The port. 32769, it will be different on yours. It's mapped to port 80 and then port 32768 is mapped to the HTTPS port. So what I have to do now is I just have to go to my browser and then I do localhost and then I do three, port Sometimes you have to use the IP address. Oh, right, 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 right. Because I'm not on Linux. I'm on, this is on, yeah, it's on the virtual machine. Mm. My bad. So if you do Docker machine, it's running on 192, 168, mm. 900, yeah. This would work if you're on It's just that simple, you just have to do a docker run and then you can see it running on your own machine. Of course, if you if you are feeling um if you are feeling adventurous then you can you can SSH into the machine. Let's say I try this static site. If you exec and then you run the shell, you can modify the file and then you can refresh the service and then you will reflect whatever is changed. Just like that. Mm. Okay, so that's that. So just now when we did this, right? Let me exit first. When we ran the when we ran the command, we ran with a dash P, capital P. Capital P, it tells it to map whatever port that is required on the container to a random port. 
it's randomized. So it, your Docker would try to find whatever um, unused port within your, your non-privileged ports. It will just try to map it. But if you want to specify which port to map to your local host, as you can see in the tutorial, you can specify it with a lowercase p, and then the, the syntax is this, the front part will be your local host port number, and then this is your container port. You're just telling it that, hey, I want to map the containers port 80 to my local host port 888. That's it. So it's really, really straightforward. And then if you do that, and then you do on your browser, and you go to 9900888, then you will get um, the same thing. I'm, I'm not going to do this because it's just a repetition of what you've done. You can try if you want. And then next, they will teach you to how to docker stop the image, I mean the container, and then you can docker remove um, the, the container files. There's another command that you can run in case when you do docker stop and then the container doesn't respond. Hmm. So in, it's common in, in Linux world where processors don't respond. So what you do is instead of docker stop, you do use docker kill. So yeah, it's, a, it's less elegant, but if your container is not responding, you can use docker kill to force kill it. And, and another thing, uh, there's something very, very um, cool about um, the docker command line is that when you do docker ps, right, you, you, there's two ways to stop or to reference your, your container. One is by your container name. In, in just now my case, it was uh, static site, or my second container is adoring Shirley. That's one way you can you can um, refer to your containers. The other way is you refer to your container ID. And Docker is intelligent enough that, let's say I want to stop my, my Alpine image, but I'm too lazy to type the full full line or the full name. As long as it's, it has a unique ID, let's say I have two containers now. The first one is container ID is 282B something. The second one is E41. So one starts with two, one starts with E. All I have to do is just do docker stop E. It will match any containers that starts with E and then it will stop it. But in this case, there's only one. Now. So if you do it like that, Wait for a moment. And then you do Dr. PS again. It's gone. So it does intelligent intelligent matching for, for your behalf. Uh. So it's useful sometimes when you want to remove multiple uh, containers or uh, multiple images. Right. So next, um, you can use Docker images to list all your image. So, yeah. So so far, when you do Docker images, you can see that the first the first row is always your repository name. Sorry, uh, my 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 one is not white enough. Let me change the font again.
Yeah, so if you look see, look at this, you can see that there's the second row, I mean second column which is called tag. So tag is something like, if you use git, you know what tag is, right? Uh, uh, anyone don't know what tag is? Tag is sort of like your versioning. So you can have, let's say you download Ubuntu, but you, you don't want the latest, because by default you will pull the latest. Let's say you want version uh, from 12.04. Then you can specify by doing docker pull, Ubuntu 12.04. You can tell it to pull specific that, that image instead of pulling um, the latest one. But of course, you have to be sure that the tag that you want to pull is already there. La. Again, to do that, you can um, use Docker Hub. Let's say I want to pull Ubuntu. Huh? Okay, uh, give me half an hour. Half an hour more. Yeah, because I started really late. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh. So if you do Ubuntu and then you click in, you can see tags. Here are all the tags available for this image. There are a lot of tags. So there's no correct way to say which image or tag to use. It's all it all boils down to developer preference. So whatever text you like, you test it and then you make sure it works with the application, then you can use it. So yeah. Mm. So so these are all um, the fundamentals of um, running this. So next, I'm gonna try something a bit more special, a bit more um, more in depth. So we have been using off the shelf um, existing images. So now we will do something more adventurous, where you will try to build your own image. Hmm. So this is done uh, using Docker Build. So to do. To build your own image, you must understand how to write Docker file. Docker file is this file where it has this special notation. Docs. Let me show you how you can write docs. So, Docker has this documentation page where you can look how how to write all these things. It will teach you. This is the basic of um, how you write a Docker file. So a Docker file will always start with a a base image from something, followed by whatever you want to whatever customization you want to do to the image. So mm. always you always start with the base image. So in in this exercise, we will um, all this has been written. Of course, if you want to write manually yourself, you can. But to save you the trouble, and since we are running out of time, um, you can do this. So let's say I am for well, this color is so hard to see. Let's say I make a directory called git. Oh, it already exists. So okay, it already exists. So nothing is there. So I'm not sure if everyone has git installed. Those that doesn't, please install git. So uh, the simplest way we can do this exercise is just by doing this. <coughs> Go to the top of your sorry, yeah. Go to the top of your and then you copy this. 
and then you just do sim simply just do git git clone. I mean, all developers, you guys should know git, right? So you just you clone the whole repo into your machine, which is really small, I think. And you have all the files of this GitHub repo on your machine. So the this tutorial that this <coughs> Docker file that we want, I mean this Docker image that we want to build, all all the files required are already inside Plus app. Yeah. It's inside this Plus app um, folder. If you go to the original, uh, I mean the root of the repo, it's actually here Plus app. So inside this plus app, you have Docker file, you have your Python app. Um, yeah, you have your Python app, the, the Python application code itself. You have the requirement for this application. Uh, it, people who use pip, you, you guys should know. Mm. Uh, yeah, and then you have um, templates inside. All these, these are all just the, the basic files you need to get this um, application running. I won't go into detail what this what what are the what are the what's being done by the application the Python code itself? Um, you are free to learn online yourself because this is just for demo purpose. I'm just showing you how how you can create your own image. So the most important thing you want to look at is you look at your Docker file. So here inside the Docker file, if you cat or less it or view it with whatever text viewer you want, the first line would always be from a base image. In this case, the base image is outline. Second line, uh, ignore all the comments. The comment is just explaining what the line run does. Second second line is run apk. apk is just app get lah. So you run apk add, and then you tell it to 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 add uh, Python pip, and then you tell it to install pip. That's it. So inside, when whenever you run this. Um, you build this image, it will do for you. It will download Alpine, it will start Alpine, it will go into the Alpine <coughs> image, uh, the container, and then it will add, update, high pip, and then you install it, and then you will copy the requirement file from your current directory, and then you will run pip install that application. And then you, you will copy your, in this line, you will copy your application file, you tell it, this is your source, this is your destination on the container. So this is, people who use um, Python app, you should know, you can specify your app this way, and then you can copy all the files that you require here into the container. And then lastly, you tell it to expose what port. And then last part, uh, our friend back there just now asked um, what happened when you start or stop a uh, container. So if you have this PMD, um, specified in your Docker file when you build an image, you will tell your container when, whenever someone starts this new image, as a new new container, what default command it would run. If you don't specify anything, then it will just run shell and then terminate lah. In this case, it would run Python, and then, of course, you need to tell it um, run Python with what. So, this is sort of just telling it. It's sort of like you start. Your, your container, it, it stops at shell, and then you tell it to run Python space, your Python application file. That's it. 
So in this case, you will run Python and what file, what application to run python.f, the, the one that we just copied. So if you have all this, again, I'm not going to explain what the application does. Um, you guys are developers, you, you know how, how to write your own binary, your application uh, codes. So it's really simple, it's just you put in your binary or whatever your, your code is, and then you tell it, you tell the, the, the container what what service or what application to run your code on. In this case, it's a Python app, then you tell it to run Python and then the code. So we have all this, what do we do next? You do docker build dash t. Docker build is building image. Dash t is the option to tell it what name you want to give it. So if you don't put dash t, okay, let's see if I don't put dash t and then I just say docker build, what to build? You put dot, then you will build the docker file. Meaning dot in, in, in Unix term means current directory. <coughs> so it will try to find the file name docker file. And then you will build it. So when you do it, it will automatically find the docker file and then you will run whatever command is in the docker file. And then wow. you, you would have your image. So how do you see your image? Of course you do docker image, image images and then you'll be able to see the image. But then you don't have a doc you don't have a docker image name for that image that you just created. How are you gonna refer to it next time? It's very troublesome. So it's always nice to always give your your new image a name with the dash T option. It helps um, when you want to use the image. As you can see, there's no name here, sorry. There's no name, there's none, none, and then image ID. You can use image ID to refer to it, but it's, who remembers image ID, man? Like, if you have five of them, then you don't remember which one is which really. So you can do docker, you can do docker build dash t followed by, um, let's say I put kennylib slash plus uh, f. And, and you notice this time, the second time I run, it's immediately done. It, it, it's intelligent enough to cache your images that it knows, hey, this is this Docker file I ran before. I'm not going to run it again. I'm just going to re-tag existing image to have to rename it only. So now yeah. if you do Docker images, and you have my, my name there, I mean the image that I tagged just now. And then, of course, you can also do other stuff, like you can do, you can retag. Mm. You can retag your, your image by using docker tag. You, let's say I want to tag docker my current image to another name. To Kenny Lim, uh, say, test map. It's, it's, it doesn't do rename, but it does a copy. So you see, they actually have the same image ID, but they have different names. <coughs> it's for you to, to manage your images. Okay? So this is how you, you create your own Docker images. I know I'm going very fast, but it's really, really simple. If you have any questions, um, feel free to, uh, to talk to me later, or you can just email me. If you want to know more, I'll give you my name card. Just email me, or hip chat me, WhatsApp me, or Slack me. I'll, I'll be more than happy to help out. Okay.
and we are almost done but not yet there's actually a big chunk of um, tutorial that you guys should be doing but I'm not sure if we have enough time I'm gonna try anyhow so we have done the static side we have done I've explained how you do the, all the fundamentals about docker docker command and then we have built an image so now is the interesting part not all applications can be run within one container like you can't have just one service as as a com application right some application they have multiple um, services as, as, as I mentioned at the beginning of uh, this demo we have an application that we want to do where we have a voting app and then we have a result app and then it uses Redis, Python, J JavaScript and then uh, Postgres so again the the Um, just now the application you built already, actually you can run it. If you run it, you will the web page will load random cat GIF files. Yeah, it's internet, we love cat pictures. So feel free to try it out. Um, but whenever you build your image, it's just docker run, whatever tag you gave it. In my case, it's kennylib slash flask app or test app. And then you again, you just do um, you check what port is it bound to your machine and then you can see it. Like, I'm not going to do it now. So it's, it's a repetition of what we've done. So now we, we, we go into the main part of this um, code lab, which is uh, the birthday training. Um, it's called birthday training is because this lab was written for the birthday event. But we're going to do it anyway. So people who don't have Docker Hub account, I would advise you to, to, to create it, but if you you are lazy to do it, you don't actually need it because the hub account is required for you to push your image. Like you already created it but you want to share with other people. You can't really like bring pen drive around and then copy the image to the pen drive mm. and pass to your friend. That's I mean internet age is mm. kind of dumb. So you push it to, to some some remote repository. In this case we push it to Docker Hub. Docker Hub is free as long as it's you as long as you use public repo. Everyone is given one single private repo to test, but if you need more private repo, then you have to buy the allocation. It's sort of like GitHub, but at least you get to try one. Nut. Okay? So, yeah, so to get the voting app running, again, I'm not gonna go into how, because this is a Docker lab, this is not coding lab, like application, how do you write an application. So I'm not gonna explain what the code does, I'm just gonna say, like I mentioned, there's a voting component and then there's a result viewing component. So again, we will we will do a git clone. Uh, you already done the git clone, so just now I've done the git clone. Uh, where am I? I'm at the fast app. So I will go into the example voting app. So if you see, I'm inside the clone repositories, which is Docker Birthday Tree, and then I'm inside example voting app. And then if you if you list here, you can see that there's a file called docker-compose.yaml. So this is a file. Just now we have docker file to build image. Now you have docker-compose. It's a separate file to build a stack of, uh, of services to, to be an application. So docker-compose is 
you, you just view it as a file that defines your application. It has the whole stack, whatever, let's say you have five services, you define all five services within this stack file. So if we do a simple cat, or you, you less, whatever, you just view, 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 view the file, or it's too fast. So I use less. So the first line is version. Again, how do you write all this? Right. Um, if I explain one by one, how does how to write all this? It would take just one hour just to do that. Always feel free to reuse our documentation page. This is on docs.doctor.com. But it's really hard to navigate because there's no search bar. So what I do is I use Google Docs. Then you put Docker. Then you put um, we are trying to find um, compose file, right? Compose. So it will give you the first return. It's more like most likely what you want. This is called the compose file reference. It will teach you how to write your own compose file. I'm just gonna go through very briefly what the compose file means. Uh, each line, version is the version of your stack. Mm -hmm. So if there's only two type, one is version one and one's version two. Version two is for it has more functionalities than version one. It supports something we call overlay networking. It's only compatible with Docker engine that is one dot ten and above. But since you guys never used before and then you guys just installed, you should get one dot ten or one dot eleven, which is which has support for version two. <coughs> Next. We go to services. Services, this line means that what kind of service you have for your whole stack. So, this part you cannot rename it anything. Like. It, it has to be services. And then inside your services, you can, you can have uh, multiple um, small services. The, the syntax or the format of this is sort of like key value pair. So this is your key. My service key inside, I have working app, I have result app, I have worker app, I mean um, the worker. And then inside, <coughs> nested inside voting app, I have the key build, and then the volume is dot voting app. I have the key volume, and then the value is the location. So all these, these are like key value pairs. Uh, I mean, you guys are developers, you should know um, about um, service discovery, at CD, all those, they use key value pair as well. Yeah. This is not exactly service discovery, but you, this is the notation. Uh, you have your key and your value. So all this, it's pretty straightforward. Build, when you say this is your service, you can, you can put whatever name you want. And then you say build, it means that it will build the image. Yeah. So I will tell it to build the image, and then where to find the Docker file? You specify here, dot voting app slash dot. So if you see here, because my, my, my command prompt very dark, very hard to see, I'm going to show you on here. It says it's inside voting app. So we click in voting app, there is a Docker file. So you're telling me that, hey, I want you to build this, this service image, but the file is at a different place. Where to find it? And then you tell it volume. When you tell volume, right, you're telling it, I want it to mount voting app on my current host to the container slash app. Understand? So in this case, 
it's using dot, so it's relative. So make sure you are at your your command prompt. You are at example dash voting dash app this directory when you run this file, because it's relative to the when you specify it's relative to your current directory. And you can specify ports. You are telling it, hey, map my host port port five thousand to the containers port eighty. For the network, I want you to create two networks called Frontier and Backtier. And then this thing is actually connected to both. You don't have to worry about what kind of network it will create. It will create it for you. You just have to tell it which network it's on so that you can specify they can talk to each other on the same network. That's it. It's intelligent enough to do it on its own. So yeah. what's next? Result app, also same. You, you specify where your Docker file is. You specify what volume to mount it to the container what port to map, and then what network is, is, is it on. And then you have worker. For worker service, we don't build our own um, image. We just use something off the shelf. Of course, this is written by someone else as well. We will just use it, and then it runs on back here. So this worker will, like I mentioned, at the start of the demo, it will pull from the Redis server and then push it to the Postgres. That's all it does. And then your fourth service will be Redis, and then again you can use off-the-shelf image. In this case, it's Redis image. Remember that whenever you want to use off-the-shelf images, be sure that the image exists by searching it, and then test it beforehand. And then you can specify container name. This can be anything. And then you can specify what port, and then what network is on. And then the last service will be your DB. Your DB image is based on Postgres version 9.4. This is optional. And then yeah. you can tell it volume what data you can mount a data to the containers for the Postgres data. You can mount anywhere you want. But in this case, we want to mount it to the data um, directory of your container. And then what network again? And then volume is just saying that hey, I want for my for my this stack of application, I want to create a volume called DB data. That's it. And then last, you define what network they, they have. Two networks. Of course, you can specify more clearly what, like what IP, uh, what subnet you want it to be, what is the yeah, what subnet you want it to be. You can specify the range of IP, but in this case, we just want it to run, so we just let it default, and then you automatically figure out what private networks to use. So you have all this. Let's go back to the lab. So you have all this. I'm just going to show you how you run this thing. Now. So all you have to do is, you be, be on the same directory as your docker-compose.yamount <coughs> file. So I'm at example voting app. That's my docker compose.yaml. All I have to do is just do docker compose up dash d. That's it. Hmm. Dash d means detach again. So you're telling it my whole stack is based on that compose file. And then you press enter, and then it will run everything that you need. You see, you will create the network, and then you will start with the first service. 
So first service need to build the image, so we will build the image. Second service need to build the image, build the image again. So it does everything for you. This is especially useful for um, developers who want to test the whole stack. Some commands might take longer, but if you run it on AWS, it's really fast. I think it's the network here is slow. And subsequent services, you don't even have to um, build them anymore. They're using um, images that you already have. And then there you go. You already have it. So now, <coughs> again, the, the, if you do .ps, when you do, when you do compose upright, it runs your whole stack for you. So if you do Docker PS now, you can see all the applications, the whole stack is running multiple containers. Just now we speci specify how many services we have, we have five. You have your voting um, Python app, you have your work um, Redis, you have your worker app, and then you have your DB, and then you have your result uh, JavaScript app. So these are all the five containers we have, and then just to see, because just now remember when we look at the um, <coughs> just now when we start this, we, when we created, um, we specify the stack, we say that the voting app runs on port 5000 and your result runs on 5001. So now very simple, all I have to do is I just go here and then I go to my port 5000. I have that app. This is a very simple working app. Of course, in the tutorial, you would have to go and edit this so that it's one of two, I mean a few of the programming language that you want to work on. But I didn't change it by default, it's one and two. So if you work one, then it will be cached inside your Redis. You get I me? Mean? <laughs> and then, if you go to your um, 192, and you go to 5001, and you have your result. Wait, one minute. Let me run. running on your side? Does yes. anyone have problem seeing 5001? No, right? Uh, no. Uh, yeah. So mine, I don't know, somehow I have to check a lot. So if, if for your case, if it runs properly, it will show you a result app where it will show how many percent of people voted on this, how many people percent voted on that. And this is just a, a, a sample of what you can do with Docker. Uh. It, the, the main point is not teaching you how to write a voting app, but the main point is to show you that you can very easily import binaries and then make it packageable within a Docker image. Mm. That's it's just that simple. So it it's like your normal normal server, your your whatever bare metal server or VM or, or vagrant you have, but lighter and faster. So once I have this, all this right, I have if I do a Docker images, 
I have all the new images that I've written. I want to share with my colleague. All I have to do is I, I just have to, um, in my case, I have to do, do Docker login. You must have an account on Hub. And then, and then next, the next thing you can do is uh, you can push your images to whatever you want to, to your to your account, and then you can have, have your friends, and then they can Docker pool, and then they can get the image on the machine. So it's mm. really really simple. So any questions? Like, <coughs> sorry. Just say what to deploy others. Just copy the image. Yeah. What do you mean Docker? <coughs> Other than pushing to the Docker Hub to be shared, the other alternative is just copy it out. Yeah, yeah, but that's not really that's really troublesome because you need a pen, right? Yeah. And then you need to do a Docker export so that you export the mm. whole file into a the whole image into a file. Because actually Docker images are layers of I'm not gonna go into the details, but it's actually layers of all, all the changes that you do to you have multiple layers, let's say you have base of Ubuntu, the first layer is the Ubuntu, then subsequently you add more stuff and small layer, more layer. Then you have to package the whole thing into a zip and then you move it to your friend and then your friend has to unzip it and then import it again. It's possible. I think it's yeah, it's possible. But fastest way is still you you either push to Docker Hub or you run your own registry. Like you run your own version of Docker Hub on your own premise. You can do that. It's free. It's called Docker Registry. Um, I'm not going to cover it this time, but anyone interested, um, you can just talk to me. I can teach you how to do it. There are documentations to show you how to do it as well. Uh, yes. What's the latest ways to like uh, slim down your image or like remove uh, unused images? <coughs> okay. To to slim down your image, I would always recommend you start with the most lightweight base image that you can find. In this case, we have been pushing people to use Alpine. It's just one Mac. So it has minimal stuff. So instead of like, like you know when you install Ubuntu, it comes with a lot of shit, then you have to, uh, forgive my language, but then you have to remove it, make it stable, and make sure it's secure. In this case, you have minimal, and then you add on whatever you want in your Docker file. You build your own image. Huh? You start with Alpine and then you say your developer did all this, then they add AppGet install all this, and then you create that as your own golden image. Next time you can base it on that instead mm. of a pure Alpine. Yeah. And for your case, how to remove you can you can do there's a lot of things you can do. You can do Docker, like I mentioned, you can do Docker RM. RMI is to remove your image from your machine. And then if you are using registry, you want to delete from registry, there are certain APIs you have to use to delete um, images from your registry. They, those are all on the documents. Uh, if you want to remove all your images, let's say I'm, I'm, I'm going not not remove my images, I want to stop all my container or even images. Uh, let's say I want to stop all my containers at one go. How do you do that? There's something you can you can can do just now we have been stopping our images one by one right you can actually do docker ps and then you have all your container id right you can do docker stop space followed by the next one you can have multiple to stop it or you're feeling adventurous you can pound it on and then you do something like this docker ps Dash Q. Dash Q will just give you your 
um, container ID. So when I do this, it will stop everything I have. So when I do this, it will stop all five containers here. Yeah. And then when you do Docker PS again, there's nothing left. See, it will list out what it does. So of course, I don't advise you to do this when you're doing it. Testing, I mean, it's unlikely you want to stop all the containers. But let's say you want to do housekeeping, then this is one of the ways. You can also do Docker RM, and then you do Docker Images Dash Q. There are a lot of things you can pass around. It. It's just like Linux command. It's very, very straightforward. Any other questions? I, I know I skip a lot of things very fast when it comes to Docker file and Docker compose, but it's it's really <coughs> fundamental stuff. It, the, the coding stuff, it's not important for you to understand it. All you have to know is this is the way you can build your image and you can build a stack file and then you can start an, a, the whole stack of application just within a few lines of code. It's really simple. <coughs> so if no one has any questions. Um, again, all these things, they are available on GitHub. It won't be taken away. Feel free to play with it, pull it, clone it. If you have any suggestion, do a pull request. Um, and if you have any questions, um, feel free, let me find. So for Docker itself, can run on bare metal in your OS, which is right now just Linux. Yes. Uh, we support major, all the major distributions are uh, Ubuntu, uh, Red Hat, CentOS, uh, whatever. Yeah. Uh, so say, all, all the Solaris, all the basic ones. Uh. So what happens? You have the base OS, the Docker engine. So that's why they pull the Ubuntu is the minimal Ubuntu. Yes. So it's another. <coughs> It uses your own kernel, you have to remember. It always uses your own kernel. But by Alpine, it's Alpine. It's still using the same. You guys all share the same Linux kernel. Okay, sharing kernel, but it's running in the Alpine environment. Yes. Oh. Yes. That way. Yes. So um, here is my email and number. Feel free to mail me or WhatsApp me if you have any questions. I I might not reply as soon as possible, but I will try my best. Um, and I actually run a, a, a separate meetup group called the Docker KL Meetup Group. You can search it up on uh, meetup.com or, or on yeah. Facebook. It's called docker-kl. Um, if you are more interested about Docker stuff, feel free to attend. Yeah, that's all I have for today. Um, I hope you learned something new today. Thank you for coming. All right. Everything, uh, it's demo, they have they, they, a lot of them, I think most of them have completed it. Okay.
Okay, so good morning to everybody. I'm Albert. I'm a Google Developer Expert from the Philippines. I also have a company called SYM, S-Y-M.ph. We're a web development, mobile app development studio based in Cebu, Philippines. So we cater to clients like government, enterprise, um, also startups, and um, like, you know, one-person operations as well. Uh, we provide technical development. Most of our applications are run in Google Cloud, um, and some also in other cloud providers and um, regular servers as well. So today I'm going to be talking about, well, I'm talking about two things. So this morning session will be just sharing about the experience um, in San Francisco GCP Next 2016. So, and then this afternoon we'll have a technical session on the Cloud Vision API amongst other code labs. So this morning will just be more storytelling. Later this afternoon will be the technical session. So. All right, let's do this. So we'll be talking about cloud, uh, Google Cloud Platform. So um, Noe has um, talked a lot about it already. But I just want to share my personal experience. So one, the first speaker in the event was uh, Sundar Pichai. If you don't know him, he's the CEO of Google, the new CEO of Google. And it was really surprising. Um, he's not in the list of speakers. So when we saw him go up on stage, we're like, whoa, the big guy is here. Like, you know, like the leader of Google is here. And so that was really... Um, quite a surprise, to be honest. And he talked about um, how everything um, in the future, or almost everything in the future, will be run in the cloud. And I think that's, I really agree, and it's really true, the trajectory going to the cloud has just really been accelerating and increasing um, almost exponentially um, this uh, recently, and it's growing fast. So if you haven't tried the cloud yet, um, you should definitely um, try dabbling in it. If you are already using the cloud, then yeah, um, continue to just push on and, and do more there. Um, the next speaker was Diane Green, and to be honest, I didn't really know her, so when she went up on stage, I quickly um, Googled her, and turns out she was uh, the CEO or the former CEO of VMware. So VMware is a popular virtual machine company provider, or they're also known as the VMware software. So she's a CEO there for 10 years. It's like 1998 to 2008. 1998, that's about the time that Google was founded. So she was already the CEO of VMware, running it for 10 years. So she definitely knows, um, and she brought virtual machines to the enterprise. You know, and that really shaped, you know, um, like the virtual 
private server, like these share um, server farms where you could have virtual machines and you could have like, even like shared hosting or something. And that really defined the industry the past decade. So now Google has brought her in to just lead the, um, the cloud side and amongst other things in Google. So it's very interesting to see somebody who's a veteran in the field of providing, um, enabling the enterprise come into Google as well and just lead that, that, uh, no, that, that side. So she spoke, spoke about why customers choose us. And she mentioned this interesting number, 9.9 .9 billion. And I was like, why didn't they make that 10 billion? Right? Like maybe it's like some psychology. Like two nines over there definitely look bigger than one, one, and then a zero. So $9.9 .9 billion is like, whoa, that's a lot of money. So that's basically the alphabet capital expenditure investment in 2015. That's like one year alone. So when I'm in the Philippines, I usually convert it to pesos because it's like our exchange rate is like 45 to a dollar. So that's like a whooping 450 billion pesos. I don't know what the exchange rate here is in Malaysia, but um, that's really a lot of money. And so that's only capital expenditure. That's not operating expense, meaning this money didn't go to developers. This money went to servers. This went to um, building data centers. This uh, money went into things that would um, empower and enable the next generation of operations in Google, which now they are opening to the public. So that's a serious amount of money. That means they're really serious about their Google Cloud platform. In fact, um, just having Sundar Pichai speak first said a lot about that. Like it was, it was the first conference um, as as um, our friend from Naui, right? Over Naui said like it's rare to have like you know the the top people at Google speak at conferences, and it's really rare. And to have them just speak um, at the conference said a lot about their seriousness about the Google Cloud. So I was really happy about that. And Next thing I'm going to show you is the data center video. So what are they spending their $9.9 .9 billion on? Well, okay, I have to switch this. Over here. So it's a very short video about their newest data center. I just want to show you the size. It's quite amazing. In the Philippines, we have huge malls here as well you have. But this data center of Google, let me pause that. I get that one here plugged in. Those are trucks. Oh, it doesn't have audio, it's a silent film. So, look at the size of that thing. And the size, it's not a mall, they don't have shops in there. Those are, those contain servers. Everything inside those are servers. Cooling systems, servers, that's just one giant computer. So they show this under construction. The servers. So you have, man, I can't even afford one of those. <laughs> All right. So that's where the $9.9 .9 billion went, and now they have made it available to us. The next guy who spoke was Eric Schmidt. So now I was really surprised. 
know, you had Sundar Pichai, and then now you had Eric Schmidt talking. He was not in the list of speakers, so it was definitely a delight. And he talked a lot about his history, about you know his experience in, in development. He started as a hex, and I don't know if I get this right, but a hex assembly programmer. Now, some of you may know that, but I don't know what that is. And later on, he then said that the next thing that was the next new thing that was invented was C. And that was really something new to them, and that was really an amazing new programming language, C. And I was like, whoa, C, that's a long time ago. And so he definitely had a lot of experience, and he just talked about how in his life, or in his programming career, there was just a new um, increasing level of abstraction. Now, who has ever tried programming in assembly today? Oh, there are a few. Do you still program in assembly? <laughs> no, most people don't program in assembly. I think a lot of people don't program in assembly anymore. I think most people don't even know what assembly programming is. I tried it in school, it wasn't fun. In fact, we actually use HLA, it's called high level assembly. It's not real assembly, it's a high level one. And so, most of us don't know it, but it doesn't matter. Because in programming, it has just increased into uh, layer upon layer of abstraction, and now we have. Python built on top of C. We have, um, I don't actually know if Python's built on top of C, but Python has C uh, libraries. Um, and now you have, you have even layers of abstraction above that. And so we just benefit a lot from these layers of abstraction. And the latest layer of abstraction is the cloud. So before you would have your own server, you would set it up, and then, then you have like data centers, and then you have hosting providers, and now you have the cloud. And in fact, on top of the cloud, we now have machine learning. And it's evolved so fast, and I even, I, I wanna give an illustration. I went to the toilet multiple times going this door, which is the wrong, next time you go outside that door. But I went to the toilet multiple times this morning, and I don't know about the girls if you know this, but we have the urinal, right? So, girls, have you seen a urinal for the guys? You've seen that, right? So before, you used to flush that thing. Like you peed and then you would, there's a handle and then you would flush it. I haven't seen many of those anymore. In fact, I think there's a generation today that doesn't even know how to flush a urinal anymore. Right? They would just come in and pee and if they peed in a urinal that needed flushing, they wouldn't flush that thing because they would think it's automatic. It didn't used to be. In fact, I think it's a great user experience not to flush. A toilet. I mean, you don't know. You don't want to touch that thing because you don't know who touched that before you, right? So it's just good to have that red light blinking. Sometimes you wonder if it's a camera. And so, <laughs> like maybe it's somebody looking at you and, oh, okay, just done, flush it. Like, you don't know. But it's some sort of infrared thing. I researched this. Um, infrared thing that then detects if there's a presence of uh, an obstruction nearby and then the obstruction leaves, therefore, you know, the person left and then it releases a valve, valve and then it flushes. Great user experience. In fact, we're just getting used to these things. There's now a new invention. It's called the no-flush urinal. For others here, it's a common thing. Have you seen these toilets, these urinals? The one they don't have a flush anymore? They just somehow absorb your pee? And the girls are like wondering, is this such a thing? Yeah, because the, 
ladies don't have that yet, they're probably thinking it's very disgusting. But we do. If you get a chance, visit a men's urinal. <laughs> and you will see it's some sort of... Sometimes you will see it very clearly because it has a sign in front of you. And it says, like, this toilet is a no-flush urinal system. It saves you 150,000 liters of water every year. And as you're peeing, you're like, wow, I feel so eco-friendly. <laughs> it just makes you feel good about peeing and all these things. But we now have the next generation of people who not only know, um, who not only know how to flush, but don't even know what flushing is. This is increasing layers of abstraction. You know, our children would tell them, you know, before we used to have this flushing system where you would press a smaller button if you peed, and you would press a bigger button if you did an other thing. And you should, be, you should be aware of that. And this was a life skill we were taught. Did you ever wonder before which one was for which? Like, no, no, the bigger one is for the bigger one, and the smaller one is for the pee. No, 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 the smaller one, is to is for the number two. I actually thought it was the other way around, you know. Like the smaller one was for your number two, and the bigger one was for the P, because in user experience, the bigger button is the one you press frequently, right? So most people pee frequently, so you press the bigger button. It's the more um, prevalent one. And if you did the rare thing, you would press the smaller one. That's how I thought about it. Obviously, I was wrong. My parents didn't teach me. They didn't have this before. So these are life skills that we are taught, and you know, and for some of you, you just learned that. <laughs> but now we don't know about these things, or we don't even need to. The children of today don't need to learn that as a life skill. And that's great. They can free up their brain power for more higher level things. You don't need to worry about the toilet flushing anymore. You just have to worry about bigger world problems. Now this may seem trivial and unrelated, but in fact, it is very, very relevant. Computing services and software development has evolved from DevOps, system ops, like you have to watch the logs and you have to set it up properly and all this networking. And it has, is now evolving to no ops. No ops meaning no operations. And the nerds in the room, and I mean, I, I can relate to this as well, is like, no, 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 you, not, you don't know what you're talking about. Like you really have to configure your servers because you want to tweak every tiny detail. Like you want to make sure it's optimized. It's like the flushing thing. You have to know whether you press a small button or the big button. But the generations of today don't even care about flushing anymore. And sooner they won't even know that there is such a thing as flushing. Crazy times, isn't it? So in software development as well, we are reaching a time when people won't care anymore, even software developers won't care anymore what, what system is running behind the scenes, what's happening, whether you're doing it via cluster, or any, as you can see, I don't even know what I'm talking about so much because to be honest, I've used no operations for quite a while and I don't even know what's happening behind the scenes. All I know is that I can serve a million users just like that at any given moment and somehow Google does the rest. And the children of tomorrow, <laughs> the people that we will be competing with, will be exactly that. In fact, machine learning has taken it a little bit forward, has taken another leap, wherein the people of tomorrow won't, or the people of today, because machine learning is already here, won't even have to learn how to program that much anymore. Before, 
you would take a doctorate study or a thesis or a paper in order for you to create an algorithm to determine whether a picture is safe for work or not, or whether if it was explicit content. And they had all these, and I looked at this, I researched this thing, right? Um, and so they had these algorithms that could determine like the angle on the color. So they would look at like flesh-like color and they would like draw patterns on it and they would determine if it was limbs, like the angle, you know, if it was also open or closed or I don't know, like limbs. And they would see if it's consistent and somehow this was a doctorate study and it could tell you if the picture was explicit or not. But now you just call one API and now you have the result. And the doctorate person, the person studying doctorate submits this, looks at the kid nowadays and goes, you're cheating. <laughs> you're cheating. And in one way it is kind of cheating, but that's exactly what's gonna happen and what's already happening already. Machine learning is teaching a new generation or will enable a new generation to create applications that don't need programming. Ooh. So we better catch up. All right, we still have a job though. It's not that easy yet. So that's good. We still have a job. All right, so, but that's a just generation. We definitely have to take part in it. The next guy who spoke was Urs Hovn. I don't know how to pronounce that. So I didn't know this guy either, but he sounded really smart. And when he said senior vice president, I knew he was definitely smart. So he runs technical infrastructure. Basically, he is the guy in charge of all the data centers in Google. And he said 1,000 VMs in five minutes. And to be honest, I was like, whoa, this is supposed to feel amazing. Wow. I didn't know it takes that long. I didn't even know that 1,000 VMs in five minutes is an amazing feat. In the world of no operations, we don't look at this. Like, we don't really care how many VMs get spun up. The only question is, I'm spiking right now, we have a television ad, there are like thousands of users coming in every second, and now it's reached like 20,000, 40,000, 100,000 people, and are they getting errors or not? I don't care if I'm getting 1,000 VMs spun up, spin 2,000 up if, you, if, it, if it needs to be, you know? And that's exactly what Google takes care of. But for the nerds in the room, for the people who care, that's the statistic. Now you let me know if that's amazing or not. I do not know. But this one definitely feels amazing. You know, internet in the Philippines is not like this. It's like you change the G to K. <laughs> so, and then if you're lucky, maybe a small, uh, an, an M. But then you change the big B to small B. Okay? So, so that one, that's pretty fast. Right? Three gigabyte per second networking within their network. That's amazing. 77 locations of data centers. Now this is impressive. They have 77 points of presence around the world. And what's more impressive is that all those points of presence are connected by their own private fiber network. Meaning they have physical cables, wires, running from one data center to another data center all over the world. Thus, it's safe to say that Google has essentially tied up the world with fiber optic cables to connect all of those. Now that's pretty far. Um, the, the trip from the Philippines to San Francisco took, took a total of 12 hours. That's only halfway around the world via plane. Somebody had to lay all those cables down. 
I'm glad we didn't have to do that. So you benefit with 77 locations all over the world, meaning your signal doesn't have, you know, every time there's a request, it doesn't have to travel halfway around the world. But you don't really care about that. Basically, it's fast. And your users definitely experience fast. Now, this one impressed me. Zero to one million queries per second. One million queries per second, that's a great number. But what's greater is if, from, if you can go from zero to one million, in less than a second. It's like, you're ready one million, from zero to one million, like boom. And then, wow, you have a lot of users. You know, I don't know if we'll ever reach this sort of scenario where you, I mean, we'll get from zero to one million queries per second in less than five years. That's usually the trajectory of like startups, right? Like, you know, three years, two years. It's rare where we actually have a startup that goes from zero to one million in less than one second. Like I launched today, and I have a one million users one second later. Um, it's impractical, but just to let you know, if you ever need that, it's possible. But maybe it's not really about launching. Maybe you already have a system that runs about one million queries per second. And if you do, I'd like to talk to you. You know, and maybe you're transitioning from, you're migrating from one system to another. Like you wanna, you wanna, you wanna transfer the requests from one server to another. And the, and the rate of those requests coming at a million queries per second, and you want to transfer it right away, Google can handle it. You can do it like that, and it's done. Let's talk about important stuff. Let's talk about money. So, other cloud providers. I don't know if your advertisements are, are similar to the Philippines, but in the Philippines, we have an advertisement like, this is brand X, compared to Google Cloud Platform. Google Cloud Platform is 59% cheaper than brand X. It is. And it's, um, they, they actually break that down into, they even have a customer-friendly pricing. So you can avail of discounts for sustained use, for prolonged use, for preempted um, VMs. And you can get up to 59% savings. And I think it's a great time because, you know, um, Google is now coming into the cloud wars. And I think um, there are already a lot of cloud providers out there, right? And just Google joining in and just um, being part of that excites me because now you have more competitors. And usually when you have more competitors, the consumers win, right? Like, yeah, uh, Google is cheaper. Now everybody will try to be cheaper and better, and that's great for us. And right now, Google is really cheap. So Google is winning. And so uh, we should definitely try it out. Now, this is another interesting. This was in a breakout track. This was not in a session. But I just wanted to share about it to you. Have you watched this movie, The Walk? Have you seen it? No. Oh, okay. It's scary. Um, it's like it's like that. Like so, this guy, this French tightrope walker, um, illegally tied a tightrope between the two towers, uh, World Trade Center towers. Um, the, so before 2011, oh, no, no, I don't know when that was. 2011. No. 2001. 2001. Why did they call it 9/11? September 11, 2001. So before that, there used to be two um, towers of World Trade Center in in uh, New York. These are like one of the highest, or it was one of the highest in the world before. And this guy legally put <coughs> a wire between the towers and walked on it. This movie is about a story. Now the problem with filming this movie is they don't have the towers now. So they had to do visual effects. And 
they use 9.1 million total core hours in GCP. Rendering takes a lot of time. Two years into video editing and then rendering. Now, I run a company, we also have a marketing department, and so we have a guy who like does editing, and so he is like, he rendered it, and then he's like, shows it to me, and I'm like, oh, can we change the text, just this one? He goes like, <laughs> and the rendering will take so much time. I was like, yeah, but it's just a small change. <laughs> Spoken like a true project manager. All right, so it's just a small change, and rendering takes a lot of time. In fact, for large screen formats, it takes so much time that for this movie, for 10 minutes in the part where they did the whole scene, um, it took 9.1 million total core hours. Before, what they used to do, or what they still do sort of in Hollywood right now, is they have what they call render farms. They have arrays of, um, they have like a semi-data center, a semi-data center, and they just do rendering in there. Let me just, let me read some statistics from their blog. There's a blog post here. Uh, why does it switch? Did I close my Chrome? Oh no, I think I closed it. Yep, I did. Okay, let me just... Oh, I know, I need full screen. Okay, so some of the statistics Here, let me let me let me make this clear to you. A single iteration of one frame, which is one twenty-fourth of a second. So you have twenty-four frames per second, right? So that you know humans can be like, whoa, it's animated, it's smooth. Has eighty-three gigabytes of input dependencies. I was like, what? One frame, eighty-three gigabytes of yeah, that's the craziest. It takes seven hours. One twenty-fourth of a second takes seven hours to render on a 16-core instance. And I thought rendering was slow on my Mac. And so that's why they have render farms. So what they do now, instead, is they, they spin up thousands of instances on Google Cloud. They send it one frame each to render. And then they wait for seven hours. But at least now, they have 1,000 frames coming in at the end of seven hours. So the guy renders it at night, sleeps, goes back the following day, and when he wakes up... Render error. <laughs> render error. <laughs> Beautiful day. <laughs> well, I gotta run the render again. I'm day off. <laughs> and so that's exactly what they do. Now, I just want you to think about that. The next time you don't... You, next time you queue up in a movie and think that paying, how much How much is a movie now here? 15, 16, MYR? Yeah, somewhere there. Yeah, just think about that next time, you know? I was like, this really made me consider like downloading movies. Like, I was like, whoa, it's expensive, and I just like click download. <laughs> so time to give back. 9.1 million four hours. They spend a lot of money. Um, amounts to a few million dollars just for the rendering alone. And that's the walk, only 10 minutes of rendering. Now imagine the Transformers, you know, Avengers. They have so much more visual effects, right? Oh, no wonder those things are expensive. 
Now, this was one of the things that Urs also talked about, was this is where we are previously and even now. This is basically um, DevOps. So you select an instance as a service. You know, most of you know this. You set up um, an OS. Um, you can do containerization now. That one I'm not so sure, I don't know about. You have then set up storage, then container orchestration, networking, monitoring, logging, testing, and then finally the user. And for the DevOps guys, this is sexy. This is like, ooh, yeah. Oh, oh, he's waving to his friend. I thought you were waving to me. Sorry, it's okay. Uh, so this is like beautiful. Like you can see all the things and connect them. And this is so geeky stuff. And I love it. And this is the future. No ops. Just like a toilet, you will not, someday you will not even know what flushing is all about. It's a layer of abstraction that's coming upon us and we need to evolve with it. And the cloud platform is a perfect perfect place to do no-ops. But at the same time, it's also scary. Some people are concerned about things like security. You know, I was asked one time in a conference before I gave a talk, and the person asked me, sir, um, how can I convince my client that um, to migrate to Google Cloud? Is it secure? Like, how will you ask about security? And so I had to ask him, okay, let me ask you, how many years of security a web security or just server security experience we have. He's like, I have about five, six years experience. I'm like, wow, that's pretty good. Well, Google has about several hundreds of people years experience and around 500 security researchers dedicated for security at Google. Tell your client that. And tell him to make a choice whether to pick you or Google. So it's an easy choice. And it's definitely an easy choice. What are the things that they're doing? So two-factor authentication. They have data loss prevention. I just love that because have you experienced like a, my a DB crash? Corrupted. Oh, where is the backup? Fiber and security researchers. Oh, I was close. Elliptical curve cryptography. cryptography. I don't even know what that means. Encryption by default. Wow. Physical security. Physical security means they have data centers and they're guarded. Like, for real. Not like, you know, like you can get in. In fact, I was told that less than 1% of Google employees have ever been to a Google data center. They don't even trust their own employees. I was like, that's pretty neat. Thinking of Edward Snowden. The NSA definitely trusted him. Look what got him to Google doesn't make the same mistake. So they have cloud security certifications. I only know PCI and ISO. The rest, I said bonus. And there's this really handy, handy uh, data center tour. I don't know if you've seen this before, but let's do it now. So let me just do this, and let's play it. And I hope the Wi-Fi still works. <laughs> Electronic music. So you can experience this using the um, Google Cardboard. You can do like a 360 tour. What happened? It's still moving. The cable? Is this like stereo? How do I do mono? Okay, I'll just do it. So let's go on a special tour. <laughs> okay, there's a guard. Wait, you saw that? 
You did, there's a guard right there. And now we're buffering. Okay. Alright, let's go in. So this is the lobby. If you can look around. Should I pause this? Are you doing something? The volume, yeah. No. I, oh, HDMI. I should have to do it. Just give me a moment. Sorry. Sound, 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 sound. Output. Headphones or HDMI? Okay, let's try this one. One of these systems goes down. We designed our systems from the bottom. All right, so while they're talking, let's take a peek around the globe. So they have this redundant power, networking, and serving domains. So even if we do lose it, it's like a rock climbing thing, wall climbing thing. Wow, training them to like scale the group. In addition, we have a team of SREs on call 24 7 that can tackle any problems that might arise. This is like a special door. Any one person can go in one at a time. Like it closes when you're like authenticating, it has like biometrics, and then you have a badge. Welcome inside. Before we can continue further, we need to go through the biometric. Okay, the biometric, but wait, it has to be, we'll add some cool experience here. Let me, let me, let me pull up my music. scan and circle lock. These only allow one person in at a time and require dual authentication to continue further. I'll see you on the other side. <laughs> all right, all right, enough, enough, enough. Let's pause that one. Okay. Ooh. It definitely had the feels, didn't it? Welcome to the data center floor. It's noisy. Tell, we have a lot of servers. But can you see the guard? He's <laughs> like guarding this guy. It was like, and I'm dressed in maybe like somebody put the top drive in the server. Extract information. To utilize our fleet, we use tools such as Borg, Colossus, and Wow, look at all these things we talk about. We're familiar with similar tools such as Kubernetes, Google Storage, and BigQuery. These tools allow Google engineers. Next. There's a guy! Let's go shred some hard drives. 
Alright, so when you're when they like upgrade hard drives, right? They need to shred it. Meaning not only do they wipe the data, they put it in this machine and they like shred it to pieces. Why don't they just donate it to charity, right? <laughs> it can be compromised. It can be extracted. Really, really. We need to cool and power it. our it's infrastructure in an environmentally sustainable and reliable way. Let's take a look. Welcome to the mechanical equipment room. It's cool, doesn't it? What is this? This is their they have water for, um, water from the data center floor pipes. So now they went out. This is outside the cooling towers. So Cindy, this is a cooling tower. And you have to rapidly cool the water from the condenser loop and sends it back down to the basin. You could say we're making actual clouds. There's the guard. Whoa. I pressed the bad button. I pressed the back button. And finally, the last part. Let's just look at the last part. Let's see. Power substation. Let's go take a look. So this is the so now they have their power supply. This is where the high voltage and power is right reduced here. and then sent to multiple power distribution centers. There like he this is. One right here. <laughs> what happens if a power distribution center loses power? If it loses power, we have multiple generator. <laughs> so as you can see, um, if you like to check it out, just use the Google Cardboard. That's a great experience. Go to the whole video. Um, and those stuff. But what you can see is that even then, like it was, you know, jokingly like looking at the guard, but he's really there. Like he's watching, and he's not alone. Probably somebody's watching him as well. Okay. Yeah. Security cameras and and the all forms of security. So another thing that Urs also talked about was just serverless architecture. This is just another way of saying no ops. Live migration, no downtime. You can migrate to a new architecture. Migrate um, from one, ver one version of your application to another. So, for example, in our company, we do a lot of deployments every single day. Like we do an average of one every ten minutes. So, so amongst all our products uh, for our clients. So, deployment to production, and there's no downtime involved. So, that's really great. If you care about the climate, Google definitely does. Here are some of their statistics. They have been carbon neutral since 2007. Um, that means that the amount of carbon they emit in the data centers and everything is offset and by the carbon uh, that they, they absorb. So their goal is to be 100% renewable power. Um, they're the largest corporate renewable energy purchaser in the world. So they're very serious about renewable energy. And their footprint for power use against typical data center is almost half, right? So that's really great. Um, I don't know if you care about these things. Like that gets translated into pricing. Like our pricing is done, and we know that the the our impact as well translated. Um, we're also basically carbon neutral. So you can put like in your if you're using Google Cloud, you can be like carbon neutral, except in your office. Uh, that one you have to account for. Now the next guy who spoke, this was on the day two, was a guy named Niels Provost. 
He's a distinguished engineer at Google, and he talked about security. And for me, this was like a long talk, and to be honest, I found it very hard to keep focused because he was very detailed. He was very detailed about the security that they have at Google. And so who is the attacker? They have lone wolves, script kiddies, insider risk, like, you know, like if that guy who did a data center tour suddenly like got a server and like, oh, I got your data. Hacktivist groups, malicious users, criminal organizations, and nation-state actors. Nation-state actors are basically like another country trying to attack your app. Like, wow, what are you doing? Now, how are they attacking? They can do distributed denial of service, spear phishing, malware, cross-site scripting, man in the middle, user error, social, and social and like zero days. Zero days are like uh, vulnerabilities that you don't even know about. So Google is like, how do we protect ourselves from vulnerabilities that even us don't know about yet? So what do they want? They want money, intellectual property, espionage, vandalism, public perception, or notoriety. Like, they just do it for fun. They do it because, oh, I'm a hacker. Oh, <laughs> I, I hack Google. Oh, I have this app. Look, <laughs> alert. Anyways, so they do it for all sorts of things. So this guy is in charge of protecting. And this is his slide. You know, it looks very detailed. But did you know in the actual GCP, and for those who went there, you know this, he went through all of those things one by one. And he was like, for our hardware, we protect it by building purpose-built chips, which means we build it ourselves, and we build it for a specific purpose, and only that purpose. We build it, we didn't buy it from any provider, so if those provider has a vulnerability, then um, we don't inherit the vulnerability. We build it ourselves. So we know what we built, and so the security there is already built in. We have purpose-built servers, and so every server that we have, we build it ourselves by Google for Google, it's not provided to other companies, therefore um, it's not easy for people to tinker with and it doesn't escape so people can't like detect vulnerabilities in it. So it's already another layer of security. And he thought about every single one of those. Purpose-built storage, purpose-built network, purpose-built data centers. Basically they said that, basically saying that if you wanted to hack into a data center, first you have to figure out even what it looks like, how it's built, the, the blueprint of it, because it's not like a traditional data center. Boot, trusted boot, cryptographic credentials, the OS IPC, this caught my attention. Um, where, which one is that? Authentication for each host and each job. So each job in the OS level has to be authenticated. So you don't have like a rogue job or something. Encryption, IAM, logging, vulnerability scanning, binary verification, source code provenance, third party code reputation, Auto-enforcement of peer review for all changes, security reviews, and in deployment, unfishable hardware second factor, TLS, DDoS protection, TLS certificate pinning, you know, certificate pinning is like what you get uh, when you like go after school, and your recognition ceremony. Best in English, pin the certificate. Anyways, operations, Updates and patching, secure best practices and configurations, threat analysis and intelligence, forensics, anomaly detection, incident response, audit logging, URL reputation, binary reputation, log reputation. By the time it was done, I was like, whoa, yay, we are done. And then he said, this is what we used to do. Now let me show what we do now. 
<laughs> and then he added all these things. And so he went over every single thing again. This guy, on his spare time, he makes swords for fun. He forges swords. I was like, whoa, he still has spare time. <laughs> so it's, a, it's basically much, much more than the security that we do or you maybe do. If you do more than this in terms of securing your, your app, I want to talk to you. All right, so definitely secure. And finally, um, you have Jeff Dean. So Jeff Dean, um, now he touched on Jeff Dean, and this guy is the head of Google Brain. So a lot of machine learning. So we talked about easy to use machine learning, ready to use. Cloud Translate API available already. Cloud Prediction API available already. Cloud Vision API available already. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Cloud Vision API. There's a technical talk this afternoon. But just to let, to let you know a little bit how it looks like, is have you ever used Google Photos? Yeah. For backing up your pictures, right? Yeah. Have you ever tried searching on Google Photos? Yeah. Like that thing works really great. So this is my Google Photos. In case you see some um, weird personal pictures, so just don't just ignore it. So, but we can do a search. For example, when I went to San Francisco, you know, I, I, I am a fan of Tesla, the car. So every time I saw Tesla, I took a photo of it. Like, Ooh, Tesla! Ooh, Tesla! So I back home, I saw a Tesla. And so, if we search Tesla, on my personal photos, whoa, I'm doing a demo, right? Hold on. Sorry about that. So, here. So I'm doing a search on Tesla. These are my personal photos. And it saw all the Tesla cars that I took. Even this, like I zoomed in so I can like zoom into the Tesla logo, but obviously it came out really nice. You know, because you zoom in in the iPhone, it's not very clear, right? Like like optical, uh, digital zoom. So that's a Tesla wheel. Google Photos found out. It's better than a human here. Like, I show you this, like, what car is this? <laughs> Google think it's a Tesla. What else can I search? You can search like, um, bridge, for example. So we went on, um, like on a, I don't know if you know this, but this is like near the KL Tower. It was very warm, we didn't stay long. But that's my wife there, she's on the bridge. There's a bridge, there's a bridge in San Francisco. That's the bridge behind me. I was thankful it didn't think I was the bridge. Um, what else what we can search? Oh, we can search cat, because you know, very famous. Oh. This is actually the movie Captain Phillips. This is the uh, Somalian pirate. Google thinks it's a cat. <laughs> but, we watched it while we were on a boat trip in, in the Philippines. How appropriate, right? Like, you're on a boat trip. They show Captain Phillips. Like, how appropriate. Okay, and then uh, these are my coworkers evening. I caught them in the office in the morning. They did an overnight. Maybe it's because of his shorts. That he looks like a cat. Um, and you even have a slide with a cat background. And if you're a human and I told you this, what do you see? And you'll be like, oh, it's talking about user interface. But the computer saw behind that. <laughs> you can't hide anything from a computer. 
What else can we, you know, laptop, for example. So you can see all pictures of laptops here. So this is us in the office. You have laptops here. Now, what's interesting is that these weren't collected via tagging. Google Photos never asked me, like, what is this picture? Put a label. We used to do that, by the way. Now, it just knows right away. I think it does, you know, it's machine learning. Probably know it's like being like all the photos being uploaded is like shipped to some sweatshop and like this guy's like, oh, label, this label. All right. We don't know. But um, it could be the Philippines, right? There's like some facility there that scanning and bagging everything. No, just kidding. It's really machine learning. Google can't do this at scale if they weren't doing true machine learning. And the beauty about this in Google Photos is because all of this is now being provided to us to the public for us to use. The same technology and platform that powers Google Photos to classify images is now available to developers for um, determining this. You can do label detection, face detection, OCR, explicit content detection, so Google has safe search. You can now do that. That's very handy for us because we have a dating app um, and you can send selfies by dating app. And so we actually use this to the, um, when you post your profile picture, so we catch um, explicit content before they are shown to other users. So we are a safe dating app. Alright, and then you have landmark detection, um, and then you have logo detection. And finally, Jeff Dean touched on TensorFlow as well. So TensorFlow is for the hardcore machine learning people. Uh, if you want to make your own models, it's not um, trained already. It's not yet trained. For example, like the Google Cloud Vision is ready to use. This one, you can make your own models for, for um, custom machine learning tasks. So for example, um, um, we have one uh, use case that we have like about 100, we have an app. Um, we work with the government and the World Bank wherein we have to classify roads um, in the Philippines. So the World Bank has, I think, low in the Philippines, somewhere around several billions of pesos and dollars. Um, to build roads in like the rural areas of the Philippines. And there's like war going on there. And so sometimes when they send the inspectors down, the inspector gets to the, near the road and then like, you wanna go there? Many bullets fly. Here's the inspection report already with pictures. Just sign it. Here's some beer as well. And so the inspector just goes sign, so they have a very big difficulty um, inspecting the sites. So the app, what it does is that um, yeah, there's a mobile app component where the inspectors can take photos of the actual road, and then it's geotagged to that location. The image is signed so that it's not uh, tampered, and then it's uploaded to the cloud. So Google Cloud in this case, and then we have a team of people going to the photos and classifying them one by one. Basically say, oh, this is a concrete road, Oh, it has potholes. Oh, it's good quality. Oh, this is muddy. Oh, it's a sucky road. This one's a fair road, poor road, bad quality. So we have this. We've classified over 10,000 images already. Just we're having a team just going to it one by one. And so we were thinking if we could use machine learning, because we have classified 10,000 images, we have for the first batch 200,000 images to go, just for this first batch. And there are several batches to come. And so we could use machine learning to identify that. So we use the 10,000 images as training data 
because it's already, uh, you know, it's already, uh, we already classified it. We could feed it, in, this is all hypothetical, we haven't tried it yet. Um, we could feed it, but we'll definitely do this. We could feed it into the machine learning platform. We could use TensorFlow. I'm actually looking for cloud, cloud machine learning, looking forward to that. And then use that as a training data so that we can then just use the machine learning platform to give them a, give it an image and the cloud or the, um, or the Google Cloud will then just be the one to classify the image, whether it's concrete, asphalt, gravel, or soil, whether it's good, fair, poor, or bad road. So that's what we're gonna do. It will save us a lot of time. And also, to my team of people who were formerly classifying, um, they will now move to better jobs. <laughs> you know, they will be able to concentrate their efforts into more um, human um, creative tasks and knowledge. And so I think that's really the push now towards being able to do a um, much more creative and knowledge process work. So yeah. I think that concludes my experience for GCP Next 2016 in San Francisco. This afternoon, I'll be talking more about the Vision API and going really into the technical details of it. There are other code labs as well. But if you have other questions, um, I'll be available during lunch um, for you to talk to me. I'd love to talk to you as well. Thank you very much, guys. That was a piece of the Salasin.10 podcast area. It is hoped that you have enjoyed it. If you have any issues, please feel free to leave a comment through any of the channels. That was a piece of the Salasin.10 podcast area. It is hoped that you have enjoyed it. If you have any issues, please feel free to leave a comment through any of the channels.